Welcome to Contra. My guest this week is Jordan Ali. Jordan is a doctoral candidate at the University of Victoria in neuropsychology. We talked about comic books, science fiction, and had a discussion on whether or not racism is on the rise in the West. Okay, so we're welcoming Jordan to the podcast. Uh, Jordan is a PhD candidate at the University of Victoria, and we're going to start our conversation today around the psychological impacts of comic books on society. Hi. Hey, Jordan. Um, yeah, so I'm a bit of a comic geek. Um, and I know comics are kind of a big thing now, right? I mean, that Avengers yeah. came out and people are uh, threatening lives over spoilers and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I actually have to, I have to apologize. I haven't seen most of the movies that are out right now. Yeah, me neither. And, and to me, actually, when you, when somebody says like graphic novels mm-hmm. or, or co- talks about comics in that sense, those aren't the ones that even come to mind in my, it, to me, I think most people have right. said comic books. Yeah, that's my, maybe what they think of. But if you say graphic novels, people think of a kind of a different, darker genre, maybe. Yeah. And I mean, I think that has legs, right? A lot of times graphic novels were, you know, comics. Well, first, graphic novels often were collections of comics. It had like a story arc that they sort of compiled and, and bound together and said this was, you know, the Infinity War and mm-hmm. we were selling it as a graphic novel. But uh, as it kind of went on, the people who grew up with comic books being their primary medium uh, of entertainment were, you know, 40, 30. Um, they wanted more adult fare. And yeah. so they were sort of plugging into that market. So they made more adult themes uh, in graphic novels. Um, also, there are a bunch of laws and things like that. So for a long time, they couldn't sell them as comics because comics were geared toward kids. Okay. Um so for a while, and again, you have to I have to apologize. I don't know the dates, but yeah, um, not important. Yeah. For a while there, I think up until I want to say the seventies, seventies or eighties, um, there was actually a law in the U.S. that um, comics had to ab- abide by. It's called the Comics Code. Uh, so the bad guy couldn't win. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and there are all these like strictures about, uh, how things had to go. You could never have the, you know, the communists beat the Americans. Or, yeah. Um, you couldn't have this or that. You couldn't use certain words. You couldn't have, uh, you know, this much sexuality or something. Um, so I know where I was going with that, but there are all these, all, all these rules. And then as soon yeah. as that kind of got taken away, people went ape and they started having actual interesting storylines. Like people had bad guys losing or mm-hmm. sorry, bad guys winning, uh, good guys getting hurt, good guys dying. Um, they had a lot more diversity, um, all sorts of stuff happened. So you had this sort of explosion, um, around, you know, the seventies, eighties, nineties and in comic interest again, because people were like, Oh, Hey, it's not just Superman shows up, punches a dude and, and it's all okay now. Yeah, and how did they identify that, like, on a on a shelf? I'm assuming that there'd be some way that a child would not just grab some extremely graphic... Um... Yeah, they, they have advisory content warnings, kind of like oh, they did yeah. on CDs, right? They had yeah. that... Uh, actually, I think it is a parental advisory or something like that. But yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they have, like, 18, 18 plus things in the corner and things like that, yeah. Oh, okay, makes sense. Yeah. So, but, for you, like, as far as 
the history and psychological impact are you mm-hmm. looking at the older comics that were mostly geared towards children as that you mentioned um, mm-hmm. before the podcast is propaganda um, yeah. kind of like i guess it would be somehow tied into the government um through yeah. media yeah i mean they, they so there's these different ages of comics and, and they mostly the the golden age silver age sort of distinction um applies mostly to dc comics because they started first okay so DC Comics is um, the Justice League, Superman, Batman, Martian Manhunter, The Flash, those kinds of guys. Yeah. Spider-Man and all those guys are Marvel. The Avengers are Marvel. Uh, and DC Comics um, was basically a company that that merged a bunch of other comic companies under one banner. And so DC means Detective Comics. Okay. So DC Comics is literally Detective Comics Comics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, um, yeah, in so the they military, had the, we had this, um, term fag gear, so it's not actually homophobic at all, mm-hmm. despite what people would maybe say, but it's, it's full assault gear. Oh. So, but often people would say like, bring your full fag gear to the range. Right. So bring your full, 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 full assault, assault gear gear. 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 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know you get this with, uh, I guess you have a language thing, but you get like chai tea as well. Yeah. And chai just means tea in Hindi. Yeah. Your tea tea. Yeah. Terrible. But, um. Yeah, so, I mean, comics definitely had this 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 propaganda ish feel to them, right? They serve different purposes. Uh, Superman came out, I think, in like nineteen thirty six. I want to say uh, okay. Action Comics, and so all of DC's stuff is sort of based in that post war period, and all of their characters are very flat, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. They're sort of like super people. You have yeah. Superman, who's just like this perfect. Uh, uh, boy scout kind of character who's like Mm -hmm. patriotic and upstanding and and everything there's nothing wrong with him at all yeah um and then you had you know green lantern and all these other guys who were just there they were literally these these sort of idols they weren't like real people and it they Mm -hmm. kind of showed the the hope and the optimism of that sort of post-war period yeah um you know we we can we can be so good look at all this stuff um and then Batman came around, and Batman was a little bit different. Uh, Batman was, you know, Bob Kane and, and these guys, they they sort of thought, we need to give an actual hero to the people of New York. Gotham was just another term for New York. Yeah. Um, because at the time, the, the mafia and stuff was taking over. The police had no control over anything. And so they basically were trying to give a sense of justice um, that didn't actually exist in the world. And these are kids sort of eating all this stuff up, right? They're, yeah. The kids saying, oh, look at Superman, he's great. The America is better than everyone else. We're beating all the Nazis and all this kind of stuff. And then Batman comes out. They're saying, oh, great. So there's somebody who's going to fight for us. And, you know, he's on the wrong side of the law, but the law is part of the problem. So it's kind of neat. So they sort of like turned it on, on its head there. Mm-hmm. Um, but Batman's just a hot mess. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I read one. I don't even know where I picked it up, but it was that one... I think it was called Batman and the Boy Wonder mm. where it really goes into like the twisted aspect of how Batman basically kidnaps a young orphan yeah. and trains him to like brutally murder people with like whatever weapons he can pick yeah. up off the ground and like get it to like the street fighter getting yeah. a 14 year old kid into a, like a brutal street fighter and it like you know the guy's like knocking his teeth out and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah it's pretty messed up and mm-hmm. if you watch there's a show now on uh 
I think it's on Netflix too, but it's like a DC show called Titans. Okay. Based on the Teen Titans, the Teen Titans were a group that was led by Robin. And Robin was pretty chill. He was still like our boy wonder in okay. the Teen Titans. But in the Titans show, Robin's got like real anger issues. Yeah. And he basically, every time he puts on his uniform, he just like murders people. Okay. Um, actually, I think he literally murders people in the show <laughs> like all <laughs> yeah. the time. And I think I think that was a big piece of that is they were basing mm-hmm. it on, on that. Exactly. Because he said that's much more realistic. Um, or much more reflective of what this sort of dynamic is. Yeah. And it's and much more interesting. I actually talk about that a lot when I'm talking about movies as like mm-hmm. realism. Because mm-hmm. I like a movie, like I like a show that's psychologically realistic. Mm-hmm. Like I, I I was listening to somebody and they were talking about how unrealistic Harry Potter was. Mm-hmm. because, But it's because there was like dragons and monsters and magic. And it's like, right. well, within the confines of that universe like those things are real so if you're going to go to see harry potter you kind of just have to accept that there are wizards and witches like that is real in that universe but when something's unrealistic when it goes against human nature right when because i think a guy like superman is unrealistic yeah um you almost have to disregard everything you know about how human beings work to accept Although I guess Superman's not technically a human being, so well, perhaps I'm, I mean physiologically, yeah. he was raised by humans. Yeah. So yeah, but I mean, Superman had one moment where he was an actual hero, where he rose above all that stuff, um, and he said in a comic, mm-hmm. he made the declaration that he's no longer a U.S. citizen. Uh, he said, "I'm here for the world. I'm everyone's hero. I'm not here just for one country or under one banner. I'm here mm-hmm. to save everyone and keep everyone safe." And I think within a year, um, because there's such an outcry, DC decided to basically redo their entire universe. They just rebooted everything. To what end? Like, in They're, what in what direction? I mean, like just started over again. Like oh, every character's story started from scratch. Uh, they called it New Fifty Two. Um, basically, they just stopped and said, "We've been going for long enough. Let's just restart it all." Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then Marvel did the same thing somewhat uh, later, but. And you think it was tied somehow to this declaration? I feel like it was. I mean, it was just the timing was so coincidental. Or maybe they knew that they were going to do that. And so they decided now is the time to have Superman do something kind of gutsy because it's not going to count anyway. Hmm. And so the New 52, it was, it's not exactly like they stopped and started over again. They sort of had like a parallel universe thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was just sort of, it was sort of funny. People were really, really upset. And yeah. what was funny was Superman was raised in Kansas um but i don't think at any point did he ever like say i'm just american right he's part of the justice league of america but then so is every other superhero to be of note just because it's an american comic right but mm-hmm. it was just it was interesting that such a there's such a fundamental like assumption that he was american that when that was uh broken people flipped yeah um because yeah it was just it was so funny they're like he's the all-american hero but i mean he was created by a canadian guy yeah. Right. And and the uh, well, they kind of poke fun in that in Watchmen, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Where like Superman exists and he is American. Yeah. 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 It, it's. I mean, he he's he's so. Uh, I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but like you can sa- make a satire of Superman so easily because he's just such a meathead. Really, mm-hmm. he shows up. He's nice, and he punches somebody, and he goes away. Right. right? Like that's kind of his role in life. 
Um, and he gets the girl and everything. Like, there's, there's nothing interesting about him. Mm-hmm. He's that guy that you know from high school who had everything work for him, and then he gets a great job and, like, has, like, three kids and then dies at the age of 70. And you're like, I hate that guy so much. <laughs> right? Like, he had a perfect life. Yeah. So who do you think are the most interesting comic book characters? Well, I think Batman's interesting, but for all the wrong reasons. I mean, he's okay. a, here's a dude who clearly has PTSD. Um or some sort of trauma. I don't know if it's PTSD. I don't know if he has flashbacks and things like that. I mean, yeah. I guess probably not. But he's clearly been traumatized. Um, so he's, he's a kid. His parents get murdered in front of him. Uh, and he kind of gets obsessed with that, right? Yeah. And he's raised like really rich and stuff like that. But he, to get into the Batcave, you have to set the time on the clock to 1048, which is exactly when his parents were killed. Mm-hmm. Like he's, He makes a concerted effort to never, ever let that go that's a central part of his identity yeah becomes obsessed with a single moment of his life right he's not bruce wayne who has had this happen to him he's uh this guy who witnessed the murder of his parents and happens to be bruce wayne Mm -hmm. right that's like this that's more him that kid than whatever else he's built Mm. all right and and no he's just all sorts of weird like he has real control issues which i guess you'd have if your parents were taken from you randomly in the middle of the night um, the closest thing he has to like a father figure or the two closest things, I guess you have like Lucius, who's his sort of business manager guy who keeps things in order. And you have Alfred, of course, of course. Now at the beginning, Alfred was a totally different character, but Alfred, as you know him now is his butler. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the few people who knows Batman's secrets, but both these guys are in his employee, which means like at the time that he was like 10 years old at any time he could have fired these guys. Yeah. Right. So already we have kind of a weird structure Yeah. where he's in control of the people who should be in control. Right. Mm-hmm. And you have a really weird dynamic. And then you have all this other stuff. Like he kidnaps a kid. Right? Yeah. Nobody says anything. He's just like, I'm rich enough. I can do this. And everyone's like, okay, cool. So it takes in this kid and he kind of does whatever he wants. There's images of them sleeping together, which I know wasn't sexual back in the day, but I don't know. It's kind of weird. It's very weird. Right? Yeah. You have a giant mansion and you're still sleeping in the same bed with this kid that you kind of kidnapped. And that's obviously <laughs> yeah. enamored with you because you pay for everything and like you've taken him under your wing. Yeah. Now it sounds like Michael Jackson. Doesn't yeah. It? Yeah. It's a weird never landy kind of situation. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that he's kind of like, he's kind of stunted and he's, mm-hmm. he's almost, yeah, he's obsessed with that one moment in his life, obsessed with that time in mm-hmm. his life. Um, but I, I've, I've had those moments mm-hmm. in life where, you know, in my experience in the military, mm-hmm. you know, you come out of university where you be, you're basically your only duty in university mm-hmm. is to be obsessed with yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you just, as long as you're studying hard and doing, you just, you know, get things done. And then in the military, if you're mm-hmm. an officer, you're thrust a platoon, you're given command of, you know, 30 to 40 people pretty right. much right away. And you're not actually, in my mind, you don't mm-hmm. actually become a leader. You're just acting a part. Like you, mm-hmm. you kind of piece together military people that you've worked with in basic training and stuff and kind of form an amalgam of, and a kind of a projection of their influences on you as well as a bunch of different Hollywood movies. Sure. And then you're just your own values that you bring to the table, but you're sure. just acting a part. Yeah. And then there's been a few times, like, you know, just like a few years later in my career where it's like, I feel like I'm acting a part. Mm-hmm. And then I stop, I'd say like, no, this is kind of just me now. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not acting this way anymore. Like I'm upset and I'm, right. you know, whatever issue I'm dealing with at mm-hmm. the time, I kind of have stopped afterwards and thought like, what where does i where do i end and where right. does the act begin you know yeah and it kind of kind of becomes a blurry line 
Yeah, because we in, we internalize so much of that, don't we? I mean, we even from when we're kids, we see mm-hmm. people, our parents perhaps, acting in a certain way, having certain gestures. Yeah. And then we start to mimic those, and then at some point they become ours. Yeah. But I mean, it, it kind of is talking about the sort of internalizing things and serving a role and then having a hard time pulling those apart. I mean, there's sort of this ongoing question with Batman. Um, is Bruce Wayne the actual person or is Batman the actual person? Which one's the the part? Yeah. Um, and I think earlier in his story, it would be Bruce Wayne, arguably. Okay. Later on, definitely it's Batman first. I mean, you almost forget he's Bruce Wayne entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, hard it's hard to know, like that sort of piece. But yeah, I don't know Bruce Bruce Wayne. Like, so he's defined by this moment, right? Mm-hmm. And I think I think one of the differences is like we all have moments that define us, good things and bad things that are turning points and things that tell us about ourselves or or change our direction, and they're really really important to us, but when we cling to a moment and we never let it go, yeah, then we sort of stop the flow of things a little bit, right? We're no longer developing in the same way. We're not carrying that experience with us. That experience is carrying us hmm. or rather holding us back. Yeah. I've heard one time that, uh, depression is an obsession with the past and anxiety is obsession with the future. It can be. Yeah. I mean, that's often how it's people think about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, anxiety often is, the what ifs, right? Um, what if something happens or how could I prepare for this? Let me think about all the different possibilities and, mm-hmm. and make sure that never happens. Um, it's also, you know, a real discomfort with ambiguity. And often often with anxiety, if we think about it like a formula a little bit, you can think of it as um, feeling like the situation's demands are greater than your coping ability. Mm-hmm. Right, so they'll obviously be that be disaster because I don't think I can cope with things. Yeah, and so to deal with that, we sort of make all these plans and things like that, and we think about all this stuff, and that can sort of spiral out of control. Yeah, and it's interesting too to me. Like, I think it was Jordan Peterson that mm-hmm. first gave me this idea of, or at least the, real, the the lens to look at yourself as kind of a distribution of infinite number of selves mm-hmm. over the you know the time frame of your life. Mm-hmm. So you know, depending on your confidence level, you give yourself more or less credit to get things done. Like, you know, if you're have confidence in your ability to, to get out of a situation, you're more willing to put yourselves in compromising situ yourself in a compromising sure. situation because you have faith in your future self. And sure. I think some people's competence is, you know, much higher than they give themselves credit mm-hmm. for. Right. But they, so they're consistently holding themselves back because mm-hmm. they don't want to put themselves in that compromising situation. And other people are consistently getting themselves in shit because they can, they give themselves no resources to solve this immense problem and procrastinate it. And you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so yeah, he really kind of like, really, yeah, had that, had that kind of like that almost integration of, you know, looking at yourself as a being that stretches across time mm-hmm. rather than just somebody that's existing now that has a past affecting it. And I was, I was thinking about this kind of, this idea of karma hmm. and how karma, not just being an abstract thing, could actually like manifest itself. If you if you take that as like as a granted, you're you know you're a you're a being that exists across time. Hmm. The way you're going to treat yourself mm-hmm. is highly influenced by the way that you treat other people in your life. Hmm. So if you're consistently taking advantage of others and taking from others to benefit yourself unfairly, 
maybe that'll actually bleed into your life in the way that you rob your future self of some opportunity to get a little bit more for yourself, um, your, your current self. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of want, like thinking about that as a, as like, a, as I like, kind of just like my own, a bit of my own personal philosophy yeah. and like how maybe, you know, bad actions against other people, like mm -hmm. how that actually will in a very concrete way come and bite you down the road because you're, you're a, it's a learned behavior of how to treat other people. And as far as you're here and now, mm -hmm. future you is another person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we collect experiences and, and each experience tells us a little bit more about ourselves, Right. And, mm -hmm. um, I think, I know with the, with the question of like karma, if, if we're using it in the sort of this, this sort of way, rather than like the traditional Hindu way. What is the traditional Hindu way? Do you know? Uh, karma kicks in next lifetime around. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Buddhists would think that, um, there's sort of this, when you die, there's sort of this, uh, oh, I don't know how to explain it exactly. Like almost like a surge of energy that pushes you into your next life. And the quality of that surge is somewhat influenced by, um, the events of your life, your actions and all these sorts of things. And okay. so that will determine sort of where you end up and what your next round mm -hmm. is going to be like. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I, I think you're right. I think if we think about it in sort of this um, relational sense. One sec. I think that's your phone or one of our phones, um, oh. like being close to this recording equipment. Let's try that. Yeah. Uh, if we think of ourselves as relationally defined, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, and some people do. There's actually th whole therapies that are based on this. Okay. Um, where we don't see ourselves as a standalone thing, but rather we see ourselves as part of this interconnected web of people and situations and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Then the way that we influence any one of those nodes is going to influence us as well. I mean, it changes our development, but yeah. if we're all connected, then obviously we're changing the shape of everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's some real merit to that. Um, we do define ourselves by our relationships with others to some degree. Like I think... I'm this type of person because I've been told that mm -hmm. or because that person reacts this way to me. Uh, this, yeah, that made sense, right? That was yeah, English. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and so I think, I think there's that, but I think, I also think that it's not necessarily that way. I feel like I wish it was more that way, but I do think of people like Trump mm -hmm. um, or other. But do you think he's having a good time? I I think he's doing okay. You think? I don't know. I don't know about having a good time, but I don't know if that's his goal. Mm. I guess I, what I meant is, I guess, in accordance with his value structure, like, do you think he's... Like, I just, I take all of his, like, posturing and mm. grandstanding as, like, as, I mean, I think most people see it as insecurity, but, you know, I feel like that's, like, reflective of some, like, deep-seated underlying problems and fears and like I, I don't know i don't i don't it doesn't strike me as somebody that's you know actually confident and yeah in like that's intrinsically mm -hmm. happy with who they are see my read of him and this is not coming from a psychological space at all this is just me yeah um is not i don't get a lot of insecurity from him no okay at least uh, that's not my read. My yeah. personal read is he's somebody who's driven to dominate others. Mm -hmm. And that's how he sees value. That's how he sees his value. So I guess in a way, again, he's defining himself relationally, right? I'm only worthwhile or I am more worthwhile if I can subjugate somebody hmm. or I can 
beat somebody down <laughs> or destroy that business or take over or whatever, but somehow flex my muscles and be the alpha in the situation. Okay. You look at his, uh, his handshake and everything. It's all designed to basically take over and monopolize the situation. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I, I, I don't think being good to people is important in the same way. And so if we're talking yeah. about karma as far as having a positive influence because there, therefore we will succeed and we'll have a positive influence back in our lives. I feel like he's sort of the, maybe it's the exception that proves the rule, I don't know, but there mm. are people out there who manipulate that. Yeah. Um, or at least can. Yeah, for sure. And I think it all depends on what we want from life. Like if we're looking for connectedness and things like that, then being that sort of warm, empathic person is going to benefit that. Mm-hmm. If we are looking to dominate others and control, then kind of squashing everyone around you is probably going to be the best way to do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. For sure. So I guess, I mean, karma in a way, but not necessarily the sort of good karma, bad karma. Yeah, sort of, totally, yeah. yeah, it's not binary. No. Hmm. So do you look at somebody like Batman on that, that spectrum of good and bad, or do you just think he's too complex of a character to suss that out? I don't think he's good and bad. I think he's like a really privileged dude who's got issues. Um, so yeah, I think I was, I was, I was saying he sort of has this control thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so his girlfriends are like Catwoman and Talia, uh, um, both of whom are criminals, uh, both of which, both of whom he could jail at any time. Okay. He's <laughs> right? like, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be with you. I'll, I'll get what I want. But the minute something goes not the way I want, I can shut this down. Hmm. Right? Not really. That's actually kind of like an abusive relationship. That is just not, <laughs> that's not good. Yeah. Um, same with Robin, actually. So at one point, Robin, the first Robin, Dick Grayson, uh, did kind of say, hey, Batman, not digging this anymore. And they had this huge falling out. Batman, like, disowned him. Mm-hmm. Um I think he beat on him a little bit too. Um, and then he got like another Robin to replace that one. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Another orphan. He got a couple of them. Uh, so Jason Todd was uh, a kid that was stealing the hubcaps off the Batmobile. Okay. And he's like, hey, a vagrant. Yeah, I'm going to take that kid in. And then summarily he gets him killed, sort of. Um, okay. Yeah, it's a spoiler, but it's like a 20-year-old spoiler, so yeah, I'm not too worried about it. Fair. It's not Game of Thrones from Sunday. Right, right. With the yeah. Starbucks cup. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Jason Todd, in, in The Killing Joke, which is a graphic novel, um, Jason Todd gets kidnapped by the Joker mm-hmm. and killed. And the Joker is basically trying to see how far he can push Batman. Because Batman's whole thing is, I don't kill people. And so Joker's like, like a Daria kind of thing, right? Uh, and so there's a lot of... To this day, there's a lot of discussion about exactly what the Joker's motivations were and exactly what he was shooting for. Some say he wanted to show Batman just how frail his own sense of self and integrity is Mm -hmm. um, and that he failed because Batman couldn't because Batman didn't kill him. Yeah. Um, But then other people say he just sort of wanted to demonstrate how futile all that is, how meaningless it all is. Yeah. Right. You stand for something great. I'll still kill all those people around you. You're not saving anyone. You're not doing anybody any good. Mm-hmm. All you're doing is being selfish and you're standing for your own stuff at the expense of everyone around you because it's more important to be consistent, kind of like the cognitive dissonance thing. Mm-hmm. 
than to save people really it's yeah. about you it's not about them mm. yeah i see what you mean right um and yeah, then his, uh, sorry, batman placed his own moral code above the lives of that, others that's an argument and jason todd actually comes back later on through magical means because comic books yeah um and accuses him of that exact thing hmm. um he says you could have saved me why didn't you save me like you raised me you saved me from the streets and stuff and then you let me die like how could i mean so little to you mm-hmm. and batman didn't have an answer for him um but another interpretation of the killing joke is at the very last like couple cells um batman has joker in his clutches and he can easily kill him mm-hmm. and joker starts laughing and then if i remember this is a long time ago batman starts laughing too and then it cuts out because they both realize that they're locked in step that mm. really batman is the antithesis of joker but no different they're two sides of the same coin Joker's going to keep doing things and he defines Batman by his chaos and his wanton violence and Batman defines Joker by his orderliness and his unwillingness to go there. And so both only exist because the other one does. Hmm. Right? The minute Batman was to kill Joker, he wouldn't be Batman anymore. He couldn't be, at least not in the same way. And so I know it's kind of it's kind of a weird segue, I guess, but I mean, so Batman is a complex character and I think the issue with any sort of comic book stuff is that each character is written by different people at different times yeah and for different generations um and so looking for a consistent thread through any of these characters is going to be kind of impossible but you look at different iterations and you kind of see these themes pop up right do you think there's something unique about the art form of comic books like i was you you gave me that one um interesting one this the saga of the swamp thing i, I love the swamp called. thing so yeah. much yeah and you know, looking at that, it, and it's certainly, it's not just a novel with pictures, mm-hmm. right? I think if you've never read a comic book, people would think like, oh, it's just a novel with pictures. But there is there is aspects you can get across that you, I mean, you're, you're mm-hmm. showing these pictures, right? So, and it's not just, it, it's definitely a very unique art form, right? Yeah. You know, if you just, if you just took the text of the Swamp Thing and put it in a book and mm-hmm. read it, it wouldn't make any sense. Right. You couldn't, there'd just be a ton of information loss and it, yeah, it just wouldn't be a cohesive story mm-hmm. anymore. Do you think there's something unique that can be transferred to the reader? Oh, yeah. Because of that art form that you can't get with a novel? I, I mean, obviously, you know, you could write this Swamp Thing as a mm-hmm. novel. It would, it would have to be rewritten. But do you think there's some, like, elements of storytelling that are very best told in that graphic Definitely. novel format? I, okay. I think I think comics and graphic novels are magic. Um, yeah. In what sense? Like, we, they, if you think about them, they, they sort of were a big thing, um, for kids at least, um, around the time that movies were sort of becoming a thing. The talkies were coming out, right? But the talkies didn't have, they couldn't hold uh, like a candle to the cinematography and stuff that you would see in comics. You Mm. have these uh, perspectives that just don't exist in real life. Uh, all sorts of stuff like that, like the the dynamism with which you see things. It's it's engaging and it captures your attention and your imagination. Um, and not only that, but I mean, you have all these sci-fi and fantasy sort of storylines that are brought to life now because you can see them. Mm-hmm. Right? This is what the spaceship looks like. This is what that planet might look like. And that's a really, really cool thing. But now, I mean, it's interesting because I think they've lost their relevance a little bit. And so you see this because of movies, because of movies. Yeah. And so you see this, uh, transition now with Marvel and, and DC's trying, but their movies are 
have been pretty rough, but people transitioning, these, these publishers are transitioning to being movie companies first mm-hmm. and their comics are following suit. So okay. before a movie used to be based on a comic. Now the comics are being based on the movies. Oh, really? Somewhat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like their, their costumes are being based on the movie costumes. Their uh, abilities are being based on movie abilities because it just worked better or because that's what this generation is used to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that makes me a little sad because I'm, I'm a bit of a purist. Um, so I, I like the idea of a consistent universe that maybe movies were, were dipping into. But then if I think about it, I mean, comics are retconned so much. They're changed all the time. At one point, they just say, uh, you know what? Superman could always fly. At the beginning, he couldn't. He could just jump really far. But no, that's just something he could always do from when he was a child. Um, yeah. Let's just not talk about that period of time when he couldn't. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's never really been a consistent universe. So what's the difference if it's in movie format, right? But uh, I, I don't know. With, with, but I guess that's what I'm trying to get yeah. at. Is if there's something, if there's some sort of unique method of storytelling that can only be that is, is, still have, yeah, yeah is is that are we losing something there because i mean my favorite graphic novel like i mentioned is mm-hmm. watchmen i i mm-hmm. think that is just like a, a masterpiece but yeah. i also and the movie the movie's the ending is different and there's a bit of i mean of course because they have a different ending there's some aspects of the storyline that right. are a little different but i think the movie was actually like excellent yeah i thought it was a, a great a great film so yeah and it captured a lot of that that comic book better better than most film adaptations right. of novels I've seen. Yeah, yeah, you know. But uh, I'm glad you brought up Watchmen because that's a really good example of this. I think, I hope, because I'm going to talk about it. So I hope. Yeah. Um. So Watchmen, at least my personal opinion, I loved the graphic novel, mm-hmm. uh, seminal work. Yeah. Um. And I actually quite liked the movie the ending of the movie was quite different from that of the graphic novel. And I thought it was way better. Um, the graphic novel has, a, and I'm, I'm all for like sort of fantastical, uh, things, but the ending seems so fantastical in the comic that it didn't seem consistent with the fantasy of the actual universe it was in. Okay. It, It just, it to me is a little too out there. And just like actually, just because most people probably haven't read that. Right. Um, I'm trying not to give spoilers, but that also is over 20 years old. So. Yeah, yeah, I think we can do that. So <laughs> y- correct me if I'm wrong, but the ending, basically the plot of Watchmen is there's this mad scientist. Well, I don't know, brilliant kind of super, superhero. former superhero yeah. um, that he's assembling a bunch of scientists and he creates um and the the doomsday clock is ticking Mm -hmm. like it's this um what era would you describe that post vietnam war if if the americans had won the vietnam war and essentially he is worried that the russians and the americans will destroy the entire world Mm -hmm. in in an effort to obliterate each other first so he creates this genetically engineered mutant creature Mm -hmm. and then has this um this thing teleported to multiple different cities, right. like a, a bunch, a couple of these different creatures. And when they get there, they emit this like psychological blast of um, unease and death, like destruction feeling. And then they're, then they're obliterated. But what people think is that it's this alien species right. that's trying to teleport itself or somehow come to earth and destroy earth. So it basically unifies the world as to, to fight right. this new common threat. Enemy, yeah, yeah. yeah. The whole common enemy. Um, and then he has to displace this like penultimate 
superhero in the process that would interfere with them. Yeah. Um, and then the movie, of course, it, it does a similar thing, except it uses this like ultimate superhero's powers, right. um, which he kind of provides to this um, evil genius slash superhero mm. um, in order to trigger these like explosions around the world, which he believes is like is a threat from this ultimate hero is turned against humanity. Right. So right? It, it was a couple things there. So yeah. So the, the whole, uh, giant alien psychic squid, yeah. um, a bit out there for me. And that's saying a lot. Uh, I can, I can, I can take a lot of out there, but yeah. I, I think the reason why was because the graphic novel was done in such a, it was grounded so much in realism. And that was sort of the point. Yeah. They're taking this thing about superheroes and vigilantes and they're basing it in real people. How would a real person be after they were no longer able to be that superhero? Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and that giant psychic squid thing that blows up and kills like half of New York. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So I thought the idea of using Dr. Manhattan in the movie as yeah. the perceived enemy was a stroke of genius. Yeah. And really, if Osmandius, the the former superhero genius guy, who, by the way, is a white dude, so, like, really cultural appropriative, like, Osmandius and this whole Egyptian thing, I don't know where, why, but anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, using Dr. Manhattan as the threat was great because, I mean, a big thing in the comic and in the movie itself was that, all these guys are just vigilantes. They weren't like super powered. They had like gadgets and stuff, but they were just vigilantes. And then comes along an actual superhero who makes them all defunct. Mm -hmm. Right. With one, like, you know, snap of his fingers, he's just wiped out an entire army kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. really he is too powerful to exist on earth. And really there is this, this threat, right? If he feels like something's wrong, then he has all the power to obliterate, obliterate it. Nobody can say anything. So it was a smart move, actually. And it was neat because the movie made Ozymandias more more relatable than the graphic novel did. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's certainly not clear that he's the bad guy. Right. Like, I think people would take both sides. Like, if the movie was filmed from his perspective with these superheroes trying to foil his plan. I think I think that would actually make for an interesting like yeah and it's movie. it's kind of been done actually in oh, yeah. in the Justice League okay um so kind of um there is a an arc where all of the Justice League superheroes are getting taken out mm-hmm. um like Superman's like you know kryptonited up and he's having a hard time uh, and all this stuff's going on and all of these superheroes are having their weaknesses targeted and they're like how do these villains know about our weaknesses and how are they so like good carrying out these attacks on us mm-hmm. it's crazy we're getting picked off and it turns out that um the supervillains didn't come up with the plan batman did okay so batman as part of the justice league secretly said i'm the only dude here who's not superpowered uh and these guys if they wanted if any of these guys turned on humanity we'd be done yeah so he basically uh, like these are his best friends and he created like plans on how to like take them all out and he's actively pursuing these plans. Well, he's not, oh, but he's it got not, okay. into the wrong hands. Right. But everyone's like, dude, what's up? Right. And uh, he's basically playing the role of Ozymandias. He's saying, you know, I'm I'm with you guys and stuff, but, you know, the first sign of trouble, like, I need to be able to take you out. Like, I yeah. don't trust you as far as I can throw you. You're just too mm-hmm. powerful. Um, so it's interesting that Watchmen kind of went that way. And then Night Owl, who was obviously like a Batman sort of character and things yeah. like that. and. Uh, so I just thought I thought that was that was a great ending to the movie, but mm-hmm. 
getting back to what we were talking about earlier about you know do comics add anything mm-hmm. that a movie can't now because they got the big booms and the cool colors and stuff yeah and i'm glad you brought up watchmen because i feel like watchmen was one of those movies that really suffered as far as its depth um by being put into movie form there are certain mm. scenes um in watchmen in the movie that they copied uh like cell by cell it looked exactly like the comic and they used they even used the same voiceover so in the comics they have like a he's like a square box that kind of gives you somebody's internal dialogue yeah uh gave you this that's actually one thing that i think comics have the advantage over right. over novels novels if you go too much internal dialogue it's weird it's it's just mm. it's like my favorite novel series of all time is dune and nice and, mine too oh yeah yeah very cool yeah um, but Dune does a lot of internal dialogue yeah, it and uh, it throws off a lot of readers. It's just a bit of a they, slog. Yeah, yeah, they can't handle that much internal dialogue. Right. Whereas I feel like comic books, because you have the action in the cells, yeah. you can have the internal dialogue written yeah, out without, true. without, yeah, without making yeah. it boring, basically. Yeah. And I mean, you can play with different things, right? Different mm-hmm. tricks too. Like often you'll have like internal dialogue on these cells and you have a character going through stuff and then you realize that the internal dialogue does not belong to that character that you're watching. It's somebody else's. You can kind of play with these sorts of yeah, things in the yeah. genre and that's a lot harder in a, in a movie. Yeah. We'll have sure. somebody's voiceover, but it's clearly not that guy's voice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so you can have this sort of um, unreliable narrator sort of situation going on in comics. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I guess I'm not, I'm not, not making the case that movies replace, um, comics mm. but it's just I'm, I'm interested in finding out why that's the case because certainly yeah. you know perhaps the first person that made a movie would say well now paintings are obsolete like mm. even before they could speak it's like well we can now we have we movie pictures yeah, why yeah. would you why would you ever look at a picture like a still picture good point yeah but people still seem to flock to yeah um, but yeah anyway you were you were talking about oh, yeah, how so, some of the depth was lost yeah so with Watchmen specifically so they they, they did these scenes that looked exactly like the book, but they had, they changed certain aspects to make it fit into a movie and it lost all meaning. So there's a scene in the movie where there's a dude who is a pedophile and he's been attacking kids and Rorschach finds out. Yeah. Yeah. And Rorschach's this really twisted character who has a weird sense of right and wrong and a weird sense of like mercy and super black and white. Yeah. 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 Um, If if you're, at all wrong, you need to be punished severely. Right, yeah. right. And and so there's this guy and he kind of ties him up. And then the voiceover says, because this is a flashback sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, and it basically says, uh, you know, I was a lot more merciful back then. And you see Rorschach like killing this dude with a cleaver. Yeah. Which makes no sense. I mean, how is that merciful? He's murdering the dude just like he murders guys now. Yeah. Right. In the comic, in the graphic novel, that same scene, still a flashback, still a pedophile, kind of looks the same, obviously, because they're trying to go for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't have the heart to kill the guy. So instead, he chained him up in his home and then set the house on fire. And he's walking away and he says, I was much more merciful back then. He saw that as a mercy. You're talking about the pedophile who fed the little girl to the dog. Right. right yeah. Oh, I guess maybe I've just seen the director's cut, but in the director's cut, he takes a cleaver to the guy's head. Yeah, he takes a cleaver to the guy's head, exactly. Yeah. But in the comic, he sets oh. the house on fire, and he sees the setting the guy on fire oh, I see. as being the merciful move, oh, because right, he said, right, I right. didn't have the guts to like kill him right out. right? And I'm like, that's such a, a, a huge point where you see how twisted his sense of morality is, hmm. right? That killing the guy is exactly what he would do now. There's been no shift. 
Yeah. Right. Whereas in the in the graphic novel, it makes clear that he couldn't bring himself to murder somebody directly, so he does this, and he's like, "Oh, I'm soft." He saw that mm. as being soft, and now he just go ahead and like, kill a guy. Right? Yeah, That's but I mean, a, in some ways, that would be soft in the sense, like, so Game of Thrones, like, mm. uh, Ned Stark says, like, if you're going to sentence a man to death, mm. you do it yourself. So he would say, if you're if you're having your executioner do your do your work, mm. then you're you're soft if you're not swinging the sword when you you know right. call the sentence out. And maybe that's kind of like what he's getting at, right? Weak but not merciful. Mm. Right, Rorschach. If I and again, I think I remember this. Uh, he saw that as being a mercy. That he didn't okay. just kill the guy. Like, mercy to the guy. Right. To burn alive. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. He was such a weird character. And like his parts in the graphic novel where he's in the mental hospital and things like that, right? And um, you see that this guy is pretty twisted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the comic, it, it partially because it it's books and it, you can have the space to do what you want to do. Yeah. They could explore that more. Mm-hmm. There was also this thing at the beginning of each chapter of the graphic novel where they had a little mini episode of a fellow who had been uh, kidnapped by pirates. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of like back in the pirate age sort of thing. Gets kidnapped by pirates. Somehow he manages to kill everybody and get off the boat. And now he's on like a murdering spree in the pilot in the pirate village, right? It's mm-hmm. the middle of the night and anyone he sees, he's just murdering and trying to like survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and each, uh, each chapter is another chapter of this little story yeah until you get to the very very end of it and the last chapter of this pirate story is that he was home the whole time he never got taken away the mm-hmm. land that he thought he had like escaped to was actually him just jumping off the boat in his own home port and he was killing like his own family and stuff he didn't yeah. even know right and then that was paralleled by what osmandius is doing he was saying it was like he killed his own people for the you know out of like this false sense of whatever um but like these sorts of things, like you can't do that in a movie as well, right? Mm-hmm. Have these like weird like asides. Yeah. It just doesn't work as well. And so a comic kind of merges the beauty of the art and things. I mean, the art's a huge thing. Like I'm, I, I've been drawing since I was a kid and it's purely because of the X-Men. Okay. Um, but you have all of that. You have the visual piece, but you also have, I think, the depth and the, the intricacy of a written text. Mm-hmm. And I don't think a movie can quite do that. And yeah, in the way and that we so see him. You know what else I think is interesting about comic books? And I was talking to this um, yesterday um, to my girlfriend. And we, were, we were driving past this old Porsche. And it was like beautiful, but also kind of ugly. And But, you know, you know, beautiful in an ugly kind of way. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and I don't actually know this for a fact, but my assumption is mm-hmm. that car, there's one, you know, German, I think Porsche's German. Mm. Porsche, yeah. So one German guy that just shaped this thing out of clay and he's like, We're done. We're gonna we're gonna make this. <laughs> like this is car, you know. <laughs> like and it, so it's just like you're you're when you look at that thing, you're it's like looking at one artist's vision. Right. Whereas now if you look at the, you know, twenty twenty Ford Focus, mm. it's designed by some committee and mm. you know, the lights are twenty percent larger because this committee, you know, some poll that we want this looks more pleasing right. and you know the stance is raised because it you know the average soccer mom wants this so it's it's no longer just one right. uh one kind of semi-sane Some person's sort of, it's vision a right yeah, yeah yeah it's like a it's it's not art anymore yeah mm-hmm. right 
Whereas I think these old things, so so that in, in that way, with a comic book, you have like one artist mm. that's drawing it, or probably probably many, but anyway, it's like, let's say five or six guys mm. that do this. So they have a lot more freedom, I would think, to explore different ideas. Whereas, yeah. you know, it's it's amazing how few great movies there are. Mm. Considering how much money and resources there are available right. to make good movies, it's like, I mean, so many times I see a movie and it's like, I can pick out all the things wrong. Like, I wouldn't right. have done that. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. This is, and it's like, I don't know anything about movies. Mm. And I'm sure if I'd made a movie, it'd be much worse than even right. the worst movie I'd ever seen. But it's amazing how poor it is considering the resources put out and how many people are pursuing yeah. careers in Hollywood. And I think it's just because of these committees, right? People, the decision, it's not, you're not looking at one person's cohesive vision anymore. Yeah. It's so watered down. But, it, you know, comics weren't that different, though. I mean, okay. with, with graphic novels, you can have a little bit more of that because you'll have, like, somebody who writes it and somebody who draws it, and they might just be working together and do that. Okay. Um, with comic comics, like your monthly magazines, mm-hmm. um, there were editors, right? So yeah. you'd take your ideas to the editor and say, I want to draw something this way, or can I have a whole page do this splash page because I think it'd look really cool? And the editor could say yes or no. Hmm. Um, same with storylines. They'd say yes or no to storylines. And... We have a whole lot of movies that are terrible, yeah. um, but there are a whole lot of comics that are pretty terrible too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, you think about it, you have all these titles that come in and out of existence, um, and then like every month they come out with something new. There's bound to be duds, and mm-hmm. there's whole decades that are duds for certain characters and things. Yeah. Um, during the 80s and 90s, there's this whole like grunge kind of thing, right? Everyone is disenfranchised. Storm from the X-Men had a, a mohawk and leather jacket. And yeah. To be fair, that's like the hottest version of Storm, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Captain America gave up being Captain America. I became nomad for a short while. He walked around with a shotgun, threw around shuriken, had like Bret Hart sunglasses and a, and, uh, uh, a leather jacket, too. Yeah, very uh, cool. Right, very cool and absolutely useless. You know, it's just you had a lot of this kind of stuff happening. Um, people were playing with things and seeing where they should take it. And that leads to a lot of bad comics. Hmm. Um, and there, there's, a, there's like running tallies of who the worst characters are and what the worst storylines were and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, I think what sticks out because there's so much material is the good stuff. And we, we kind of glom onto that. Right. But we forget yeah. all the in between. Mm-hmm. Um, like Daredevil's uh, a great example. I think of a comic done both really well and really badly. Um, Daredevil is one of the older comics for Marvel. Yeah. Uh, for uh, I'm not sure exactly who your listeners are, but for those who aren't aware of Daredevil, um, he was uh, injured by as a child uh, in a chemical accident. Uh, funnily enough, the same chemical accident that gave rise to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Fun crossover. Yep. The chemical was the ooze and it went down the drain and then affected these turtles. Hmm. Um. Yeah, so, yeah, there you go. Uh, but uh, Daredevil went blind, but his other senses were heightened. Now, for a short period of time, they kept heightening his abilities. So at one point, he could feel yellow with his fingers. <laughs> yeah. Um, it got, like, really bad. Uh, but then there's other storylines, again, sort of like this Batman thing, where they're dealing with his morality. I mean, Daredevil was a devout Catholic, and one of his big struggles always was, should I kill is it more just to take somebody off the road for uh, off the street forever and mm-hmm. save people because I know he's going to do something or is it more just to leave that up to God and just sort of beat the crap out of him? Now that's yeah. sort of a weird, weird polarity. I mean, beating the crap also wouldn't be a super just thing according to some people, but 
I mean, comics never really questioned that, right? The answer is always just beat the hell out of somebody, and that's yeah. that's good. But uh, so there's this one. Um, actually, funnily enough, this sort it's of like the classic movie thing where if you if you're a real good guy mm-hmm. and say there's like a like a, a bad guy or or even just like an ambivalent character, right. you can just take your gun and crack him on the head with oh, it yeah. and just knock him out for He's five minutes. For and they yeah. wake up. Yeah, they wake up and it's like, oh, that's all good. It's like that person could be severely brain damaged. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I know. So I, uh, like, I, brain damage is sort of my bread and butter. It's it's what we assassin things in, in my field. Oh, yeah. Um, And so I watch these things, and I, I'm also a martial artist, and I watch a lot of martial arts stuff. And watching these movies, I'm like, that's brain damage. Like, everyone here is brain damaged, right? Somebody gets conked on the head, and they're out for, like, a day, and then they wake up somewhere. It's like, that doesn't happen unless there's, like, severe brain damage. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Right? You should never lose consciousness for that long. Um, but no, with Daredevil, there's this uh, thing, and they have a show on Netflix, Daredevil show, and they did this scene, but they screwed it up again because they didn't understand it or they okay. couldn't show it maybe. So in the comic, um, Punisher is sort of the antithesis to Daredevil. Punisher is this guy who says, like, shoot everybody all yeah. the time, right? If like it looks at you wrong, it's probably a bad guy, just shoot him. Um, and Daredevil's like, no, just beat him with billy clubs instead. <laughs> uh, and so at one point, Punisher basically chains up uh, Daredevil uh, in such a way that he can't move. And he attaches a gun to his hand and he says there's one bullet in the gun. And then Punisher sets himself up on the edge of the same roof. And he says, if you don't shoot me, if you don't kill me, I'm going to shoot that guy. Who's like a bad guy, but Daredevil's like... Sort of like the trolley problem, right? Do I indirectly, passively allow a murder to happen? Or do I murder the person that's going to do it? Either way, I'm kind of hooped. And Punisher's whole thing is, I'm going to show you how fragile your whole sense of morality is. And so there's this like really tense kind of thing. And then Daredevil snaps. Just as Punisher's about to pull the trigger, Daredevil starts screaming and he starts like pulling the trigger. Uh, and like shooting at Punisher and the gun goes click 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 and Punisher just laughs he wouldn't be stupid enough to put a bullet in it and get himself killed yeah he wants to demonstrate to Daredevil that his morals mean nothing mm-hmm. that when it comes down to it he's you know just as weak as anybody else and so Punisher just like I was like all right cool I won't shoot the guy and they just like walks away and he leaves Daredevil there like sobbing mm-hmm. right and so there's sort of this thing where people say that daredevil's writers are the writers who have hated their character the most because basically their job in like no matter who's writing daredevil they're always trying to like, break him down somehow okay. he's like really mean to him now in the show they have the same scene he's tied up he has this sort of gun and all this kind of stuff and punisher is about to shoot someone and then daredevil's like i don't know what to do just like the comic and then he's like oh i have an idea and he shoots the chain that's holding him and there's a bullet in the gun magically and he gets free. And it's like, really? Like, you completely missed the point. The point was not for Daredevil to be tied up for momentarily and then to choose option C because that's easy. Yeah. It was to give him an unwinnable situation, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it definitely it takes the depth away. It definitely does. And yeah. with comics, I think because they have this sort of monthly thing, they have people following these characters, seeing their various adventures, understanding the character from a deeper sense. You can do these things. You can play with these things. Whereas in a movie, any character's role is really just to further the storyline that you've already put out there. Mm-hmm. It's not to understand the character. Yeah, I actually wonder, like, 
I mean, there is there's certain movies that are are just. I, I recently saw, not even recently, a couple of years ago now, Arrival. Oh. Arrival is like, was it an amazing mm-hmm. movie in my opinion? But, but like most movies I see now, it's like there's no, there's very few movies that have come out that I'd rather watch than an episode of Game of Thrones. Right. Yeah. And it's not because like one episode of Game of Thrones is necessarily better than that movie. Mm-hmm. It's just because there's so many intertwined story arcs that are all like awesome like coming together right. and culminating and then you know it's just so engaging yeah because you have that background just like what you said with readers with this monthly comic you yeah. can play with so many more abstract ideas because you truly know the characters right. um now a movie like arrival wasn't really about that it was kind of like a single idea yeah. that that it was focused on and then like almost like an essay yeah. but have you ever but, felt so much for a weird squid monster <laughs> <laughs> i i felt that deeply yeah yeah, but uh, no, like you're you're right. I, th- I think it's it's part of being it's it's being part of this world, um, and and you're seeing that now. I think people are understanding that, so they're having these big serial shows uh, that are doing that. But movies don't have the same pull now, right? Mm-hmm. It used to be like movies were only option, and that on TV you'd get your sort of monster of the week show, and that'd be it. But yeah, um, it, there's much more depth now, so it's yeah. kind of nice to see. Yeah, I wonder. I, have you seen that? Uh, that Dune's gonna be made into a movie. Yeah, but they've been saying that for like ten years now. Yeah, but now they like it's now it's it's more concrete. Is it yeah. okay? Yeah, that's yeah. very very exciting. And you know who's doing it? Dennis Villeneuve. Oh, okay. The guy who did Arrival. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm quite excited. Yeah, that's gonna be good. I think it's gonna be really although good. I I kind of hope that uh, Patrick Stewart comes back as Gurney Man. <laughs> <laughs> They actually had a and Sting, a couple, of course. Yeah, you need Sting back. Yeah, <laughs> they had a couple weird castings in it. Um, I, I I don't even, I can't recall it, but mm. I remember there was a there's a few that I was like, oh yeah, that's good, and then there's a few like, okay, yeah. See, like, and, and that too, like Dune is, it's got like deep stuff in there. I mean, philosophically, I, I love Dune. I've been calling myself Buddhist Islamic for like most of my life. Um, it's it's got a lot, and if you understand the mythology behind it, if you understand the various um philosophical stances and religions and all these sorts of things that are talked about mm-hmm. uh it just adds so much to it um to your understanding of those philosophies too and so it's, it's really great but i think dune on its own as a book is kind of a hard read now dune as a series of books is much more interesting you learn more about the navigators you learn about yeah. you know all these things like, um the Bene Gesserit more and all this kind of stuff. And it, it's, it creates that world. And you're like, whoa, this is a really alien place. But not in the ways you'd think necessarily. And uh, yeah, so I think I think fantasy and sci-fi have always done a good job of this. And they've always understood that, I think. Good fantasy and sci-fi writers and good comic book writers have always understood that their strength is not in having a cool monster that somebody can punch really hard. Yeah, It's about world building first. And then mm. stuff happens in that world. And I think movies are just starting to figure that out. Yeah. And, and my whole point, like, even though I am really excited for Dennis Villeneuve to get his mm. crack at uh, Dune, at the same way, I'm disappointed that it's not getting a Game of Thrones mm. style HBO right. sprawling. Like, because that's what would be like, yeah. you could easily do six seasons mm-hmm. of 10 episodes hour long for Dune, for yeah. the six Dune books, like easily. Yeah. Um, and that would be unbelievable, but just, it would take like probably even more of a budget than Game of Thrones. Oh, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't know if it has enough explicit content in it. 
So uh, I'm one of those mm-hmm. weird people. I've never seen an episode of Game of Thrones. Really? I started watch. I started reading the books about five years before the show was even like talked about. Okay. And so I have such a set idea of who looks like what and what's going mm-hmm. on. And there are characters in the books that don't exist in the, in the show. I don't want to mess with it. I'm still holding out. I'm hoping George R.R. Martin doesn't die of diabetes before <laughs> he comes out with like the last, whatever it is, five books or whatever it is now. Um, so I'll hold out. If he, if he passes on before the end of the books, then I'll just switch gears and I'll become a show guy. But I know what's going on in the show. I kind of keep up and somewhat. I mean, I know now it's ahead. Starbucks and all. Um, yeah. The last one uh, was a little bit disappointing. Hey, but at least you could episode. see it though, right? Hmm? At least you could see it. I'm told the, the previous episode is so dark that nobody could make out anything. So yeah, yeah. That's something. But um, yeah, so with Dune, I think I think it would be harder because with the, the books, I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're fat. And he's very descriptive. And so basically translating that to a show or a movie is easy peasy. You literally just show what he's said whereas in dune there's so much left open like what does the still suit look like mm-hmm. right or even what does a shehalud look like uh the the sandworm like it kind of describes it but not really and yeah. I, I know you can like put a spin on it but there's going to be so many points like that where you're putting a spin on things what does a harken and heart plug look like yeah right Wh- like what is it even what is even like uh the the Harkonnen look like, you know, the floating dude, like, I don't know. Like, it's yeah, a really I mean, weird thing. That's where, that's where a good, like, crew comes in, right? That is like, where a good crew comes in. And I think they could do a lot. I think it would just take so much work to yeah. do it well. And I don't know if anyone's willing to do that much work. And that's why I say, I mean, even though there's been a weird, couple weird disappointments in the the most recent couple episodes of Game of Thrones, like they did that really yeah. well. And same with Lord of the Rings. Like mm-hmm. those um, first, we won't talk about The Hobbit, but <laughs> those first three movies, like they do a great job. They yeah. did a great job. They did, yeah. But even that, like, you know, they could have easily had two seasons, three, say three seasons of oh, yeah, uh, as a HBO show, show yeah, for, yeah, yeah. For, for Lord yeah. of the Rings. And Well, they used to do that. Like there's an old super low budget version of the the narnia chronicles um when i was a kid and it was a show oh yeah and it's british obviously so you just see like a british person with like kind of bad blackface with a beaver suit on and they'd be a talking <laughs> beaver right yeah but the fact that they made it a show i mean you actually saw the entire book yeah or books right um whereas they had to leave things out even for lord of the rings i mean they did a great job um, but with Lord of the Rings, I think it was a good idea because I I'm one of the few nerds out there who hates the books. You hate the books. I do. I love what they stand for. I love what it came from. I I love what it did for the genre, although it's a little pigeonholey because everyone's talking about elves and dwarves all the time. It's a little sad. Mm-hmm. But uh, the writing was. I don't need three pages of what hills look like. I <laughs> you know it just doesn't matter to me. Um, Fair enough. And Tom Bombadil, I know he's important in the universe. I realize he's supposed to be a stand-in for like you know God with a capital G, but come on, he's a weirdo. He just runs around singing Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo. Like it's, it's really weird. And so they left yeah. him out of the out of the movies. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I kind of feel like if you're gonna go that that like full on, you gotta go full on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. I, I... I think there's some things you can take a creative license with, just like you said with with Watchmen, right? Where they yeah. they got rid of the obliterating psychic squid in favor right, of yeah, a more yeah. um, 
more realistic. Yeah, uh, I mean, it happens. Like in Blade Runner, um, OG Blade Runner, mm -hmm. uh, Philip K. Dick saw the movie and he was so surprised. He was floored. And he said, that ending is way better than the ending I wrote. Oh, yeah. Right? So I think there's that, too, that we start to revere these sorts of things. Like, I sort of revere comics, like the old school comics, right? And I'm like, they shouldn't be changed. And I'm like, that was just a random dude writing that. Like, yeah. there's nothing magic about it. Like, the you know first what, uh, Avengers movie was the actual ending in the comic is so lame. Okay. And so it's a good thing they changed it. Ant-Man basically got a bunch of ants to open up a trap door under Loki, and Loki fell out of the plane. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, it's a way better ending in the movie, so, yeah. Yeah, I uh, oh, now I lost my train of thought. I was just thinking of uh, what were you talking about before then? The uh, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, and um, creative license. Yeah, I guess so. Barbarella. <laughs> no, that was just hopeful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I haven't even heard of Barbarella. What is that? Oh, Barbarella was, uh, it was sort of this retro-futuristic, sexy space romp kind of thing. Um, you know, like the, the old school, like sort of sexploitation films, right? Where it's like zombies going around, pulling off girls' clothes and stuff in like the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Yeah. So Barbarella was Jane Fonda in basically a space bikini going around like fighting aliens. Um, and it was excellent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so long, like if you're watching it for what you should be watching it for, which is a little creepy, then uh, <laughs> it's it's pretty good. But it's like a it's a classic, kind of like um, oh, what's it called? Oh, I want to say like Zara Zara Dose or something. Um, it's Sean Connery in like a red speedo and a ponytail. Okay, and it's supposed to be like oh, and, and like thigh high boots. Um. In space, right? It's sci-fi. I just had sci-fi. There's a lot of bad sci-fi too. Yeah, for sure. But it's like so good, bad. Yeah. But yeah, no. Like I know, I realize my um my shtick here is supposed to be the comic guy. So let me let me steer us to uh to comics again and something close to my heart, the X-Men. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, now I think I think you're about the same age as me, so you may have grown up with the X-Men TV show that I grew up with, the cartoon. Um. And so the X-Men was created to be sort of this thing, unlike a lot of the previous things where Captain America punches Nazi and uh, and Iron Man demonstrates American superiority over uh, the Chinese and the Russians and all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Um, X-Men was about uh, the the social, the civil rights movement. Yeah. Right? It was about like we're all equal, we're all the same. To this day, the X-Men has more blue people in it than people of color. Okay. <laughs> right? Like they, they failed horribly. And their whole idea that we're all human is kind of thrown out the window when they say, oh yeah, but these people are actually a threat because they have superpowers and they could kill all of you. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the X-Men's another fail. But um, I, I know, I feel like, oh, there's actually a lot more fails. There's another great one here. A Green Lantern? Yeah, never. Uh, I think I saw the movie with uh, Ryan Reynolds. With, yeah, with oh, Ryan Reynolds, and yeah. I think he even makes fun of that movie in Deadpool. Yeah, in Deadpool, yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. Um, so Green Lantern uh, is Hal Jordan, like one of the first Green Lanterns. He's the second Green Lantern, um, but the one that we know best. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had this sort of sidekick at one point. There was this like I don't know, like fourteen year old girl, 
uh, alien Arisia or Arisa, Arisia, I think. And she was into him. Like clearly she kind of followed him around and stuff, but she's like 14, right? And she's yeah. sort of like this elfin 14 year old. Well, somehow um, she gets her hands on a ring. She becomes a Green Lantern herself. And her first thing is she uses the ring to turn herself into a full grown woman. And Hal Jordan walks in. He's like, oh my God, you're a full-grown woman. And then he proceeds to bang her for like the next six years. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like really creepy. Because um, she's still a 14-year-old, right? And he yeah. knows this. Uh, then you had Dr. Fate. Dr. Fate was also DC. DC has a lot of bad characters. Green Lantern's DC as well. Uh, Dr. Fate is basically uh, DC's version of uh, Doctor Strange. Okay. Um, somebody puts on a magic helmet and a magic cape kind of thing. And they get superpowers. Or the magic powers um so the original dr fate dies and the magic belongings the sort of suit goes to a boy and his stepmom uh when they wear these things they merge into one body and become dr fate um sometimes appearing as a woman sometimes appearing as a male but this whole like a stepson merging with the stepmom thing is a little creepy Mm -hmm. i mean I'm, i'm all for like you know identify as you want to identify and gender fluidity and stuff that's cool like yeah but like it's it's the relational thing that kind of gets me you know <laughs> yeah there's a lot of that kind of weird stuff in comics too so when you say there's like bad movies do you think that'll be the next uh next frontier of the progressive movement is uh the the pro incest movement oh yeah <laughs> that'll be that'll I, be I, as popular i don't know i mean I, I don't know if i'd be as on board with that as i am <laughs> with with some other things yeah but uh like, there's a lot of weirdness out there in comics, right? So uh, people like me who sometimes sort of uh, put comics on a pedestal, when you take a step back and you look at them, I mean, there's a lot of horrible stuff in comics mm-hmm. too. So you know what it was that I was actually thinking about earlier? Mm-hmm. Do you read a lot of Stephen King? Not a lot. I, I mm-hmm. know of some Stephen King. So there, in my mind, he's somebody, and being a total, like I've taken one psychology class mm-hmm. in university, but he's somebody that just like gets twisted like people who are not not twisted and evil, mm-hmm. but just people who have have some sort of strange idiosyncratic behavior, mm-hmm. and they they like push that on others. So right, right, right. in the book, it one of the characters, um, their mother is that uh, I forget what he called Munchausen oh, yeah. by proxy. So she's constantly trying to convince her kid that he's really sickly and mm-hmm. giving him all these medications and it's just to keep him close and keep him for baby and just mm-hmm. that overprotecting overbearing mother and they do such a good job of that in that mm-hmm. book um, and then the the main character whose little brother dies at the beginning of the book his parents have this like well basically kind of like PTSDs like depression and just like the darkness in their household is mm-hmm. like and that like kind of like self-loathing it's, it's just captured so well yeah. by him. But you were talking earlier about how um, some, you know, comic book artists, they look at, or, or novelists, they look at mm-hmm. the, the, the movie and say, oh, that's better. Mm-hmm. Well, in my mind, when I look at Stephen King, what books, what movies he thinks do a good job of his books, it's it's ludicrous. Like, he, apparently he thought uh, The Gunslinger was a great oh, movie. Really? And it was like, like that, that was a, that was a pretty good novel series. Yeah. But the movie was like awful. It, yeah. In my mind, it like totally missed the point. It totally then, missed the point. And then it was a great Stephen King novel mm-hmm. and super deep. And it like these children had this like psychological conflict with this being from another dimension. Mm-hmm. Whereas the movie just turned it into here's a monster and they're going to beat it up. Yep. It, it's like, it's just so reductionist. Yeah. Um, 
You totally missed it. Yeah. I mean, just totally missed it. Yeah. Yeah. No, Stephen King's a, an interesting one because I've read a little bit of Stephen King, not a whole lot. I, I've almost everyone I know has read more Stephen King than me, but okay. um, I have I have mixed feelings about Stephen King's writing. Okay, and then I've I've pretty mixed feelings about his his films too. But I realize that with the films, he's not usually in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. Like George R. R. Martin's like sitting there and telling yeah. them what they can do, whereas Stephen King's like do whatever you want. Yeah, like, yeah. cool. Um, but he he really likes Maine for some reason. Like everything's oh, in yeah, Maine all yeah, the time. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just find like sometimes he goes twisted for the sake of being twisted. Mm-hmm. Um, and like there's, there's, I get it sometimes, but I also think sometimes he's just sort of reveling in his own stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so I almost think like Stephen King is the real secret villain of all of his, it's not this like whatever the guy's name is, Ronald or whatever, Russell, who's that guy? That little wizard dude. He shows oh, up in Randall, a bunch of his, Randall Reg- flag, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, Randall, yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Stephen King, he's, I don't know. He does weird stuff, man. Yeah, he does. Like, I, I was Gerald's it. Game? I haven't read that one. I, I If I understand correctly, a woman and her lover uh, go up to a cabin where they can't be heard and it's learned like BDSM and all this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which by the way, Wonder Woman was too. Um, and then the guy like dies like mid coitus on top of her yeah and she can't get up and she's like tied up to this bed mm-hmm. and that's like the whole book like her trying to like yeah. get this like dead guy off her that's kind of horrible that's like a terrible situation yeah like who would write about that it's like stephen king yeah 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 but i, I think i think that's like like we all have twisted thoughts that you sure. don't want to share yeah. right and i think it's interesting when you find somebody that's brave enough to be like here's just this like awful pit of darkness from my soul yeah and check it out it like, i think it's i think it is very brave yeah. yeah to write like that like yeah because yeah. i think everybody you know as a writer that that's capturing that that's come from within you so i think somebody else it's easy to look at it you know and and critique the style or this mm-hmm. and, it, and and not that that's what you're doing mm-hmm. but uh but yeah you know you when you put that on paper, like a lot of those things, I imagine they come from a personal place. So Somewhere, yeah. I, I would bet if I was writing some horror story um, that I would constantly be thinking like, how is this going to reflect back on me? Yeah. How yeah, is yeah. my family going to read this? Like, cause this, it might be drawing from some specific yeah. event in my life. Like, Oh, these people are going to think this about me. These people are going to think that like, that'd be, it'd be very hard yeah. to, cause you need to use honest experiences sure. or else it's going to come out as hollow and flat and yeah. like Superman. Right. Yep. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think having a little bit of trauma and having like some darkness is going to give it some depth. I oh, mean, yeah. one thing I've heard, I, I'm sure maybe there's evidence to validate mm-hmm. this, but like, um, people like a lot of, this is a, what does it call it? A, not a colloquialism, but like a old wives tale mm-hmm. that most psychologists have mm-hmm. some sort of deep rooted psychological problems. Mm-hmm. Is that is that true or is that? Is I that mean, not? it depends on how you define a problem, I guess. Yeah, I guess most um, people have some sort of. Yeah, I mean, all problem. of us have yeah. sticking points. All of us have yeah challenging circumstances and stuff in our past that we carry forward with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of us, I think, to some extent, seek to resolve or repeat those things. Mm. Um, but I mean, it, I certainly, it, I'm certainly very interested in psychology, and it's like sometimes I'm like, am I am I just interested in this to try to resolve some sort of internal stress? Or you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Some, some sticking points, or am I just genuinely interested? in it? I feel like there's probably a bit of both. Yeah, I don't but. think there's really a difference. I mean, if mm-hmm. if all of us have stuff, 
yeah. then having that be sort of a, a motivation for us to look into ourselves and look into others is sort of natural, right? It's just a human thing. Yeah. Um, the reason I, I like, I, I love psychology. I, I love talking psychology. I love the research, uh, reading about different views and philosophies. Um, and so my sort of way into that was I got really into philosophy mm-hmm. when I was, oh, I don't know, 16 through now. Yeah. Um, and then I got really into English literature. Okay. And I realized the thing I liked about English lit, I mean, I love the writing and stuff, but it was always about what it said about people and human mm. nature. Yeah. And then I was like, well, that's kind of psychology, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For me, like the most interesting thing is when somebody starts talking about uh, a person in their life or person they work with, mm. however it is, that's that's very unbalanced. Mm. And like the way they act and the way they talk and their motivations and mm. like getting, even if it's by proxy, but getting to know somebody that's like clearly unbalanced mm. is, I think, you know, to figure out something small, you know, what is it like? if you understand the extremes all of a sudden like the the medial middle grounds become obvious right mm-hmm. like if you want to understand how like a ripple affects a leaf in a pond like first like see how a wave affects a surfer right mm-hmm. and then you can kind of run your like little thought experiment for how this works at a smaller scale mm-hmm. so i think that like you know you see somebody that's like clearly unbalanced and mm-hmm. like making up lies and just had weaving this web deceit i think it's a lot easier to understand that like almost like one dimensional but although maybe i'm putting too much on it by saying it's one dimensional but it it gives you like a lens to look at those like things in within yourself and within others Mm -hmm. in your life that are maybe less obvious but they're still there right right? right. and like you know because so you can kind of use um extreme behaviors you see in others as sort of a, a mirror for your own perhaps less extreme tendencies yeah yeah and i try to do that whenever i hear about somebody that's like really unbalanced or like where where do i where have i displayed Mm. that behavior in my life um yeah it's a it's a it's an interesting thing isn't it because um there is i think he was a philosopher by trade uh called nagel Mm -hmm. uh and nagel asked this this pretty simple question he said um what is it like to be a bat Mm -hmm. and the challenge is it's impossible for us to understand what it would be like to be a bat because all we can ever understand is what it's like to be a person to be a bat. Mm-hmm. We can't step that far out of our own view and our own experiences and our own knowledge and understanding. And do we even have, understand what it's like to be a person or just understand what it's like to be ourselves? Well, this is the thing, right? Um, when we see people often, especially when we're trying to make guesses about their motivations and things like that, I mean, I think a lot of times those sorts of projections can say more about us than than the person. I mean, we can make educated guesses, but we don't always know. I always yeah. think, especially when you see somebody who might be struggling, The for me at least, um, the first place to start is a place of compassion. Because mm-hmm. I, I honestly think that all of us, regardless of our circumstances, um, given what we have going on, um, we are trying our best at all times. Now, what that is, is different depending on the day and what's happened and whatever I've been living with and all this kind of stuff. But if I kind of start from there, then I find my interpretation of everything 
tends to be a bit different. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I start from, I wouldn't do things that way, then I'm already starting from a place of evaluation. And I don't know if that's always super helpful. Yeah. Um, You know what's something I wonder mm -hmm. about? When you see somebody that's like clearly unbalanced, um, spouting things that you assume to be false, like government's watching me Mm -hmm. and they're just... I wonder these people are, is there too much going on in their mind or too little? You know, I I often think that like, is there, is there, if you looked into their mind and like felt their experience, Mm -hmm. would, would you feel lacking or would you feel overwhelmed? I don't know. And sometimes I think that, you know, perhaps somebody that's consistently underperforming in life in like maybe an, like I don't know if you'd measure their IQ, but they're just not doing very well. Perhaps they have this like high mental faculties. Like they're just as intelligent and just as, uh, I mean, intelligence is even the wrong word, but just as like uh, human, I guess, as anybody else. But they're just so like, just life is completely overwhelming. Like, I mean, I guess now you, you can talk about like autism because that, that is actually how that manifests, right? With where they're just overwhelmed by external stimulus. But I wonder it if there's a be. possibility, like, can people be overwhelmed by internal stimulus? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, but that's that's not necessarily just the person that you might see who's talking to themselves either. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can have people who have panic attacks um, when they encounter things. Yeah. Uh, right? Anxiety can be very, very overwhelming, and it can take over people's lives. Um, it's yeah. huge. Depression can be overwhelming. It just is overwhelming in a different way. It can basically pin you to your bed um so we can definitely be overwhelmed by our internal experience we can be overwhelmed by circumstances um and some would argue that uh rather than either of those being true it's our internal experience of our circumstances that would that would be the thing that overwhelms us Um, yeah and this is something that's interesting to me as i look at most problems right or wrong as like or most times when i'm trying to figure out a human being i look at it as an evolutionary problem like mm-hmm. okay where did these traits like originate like why you know why do we do these certain things like and i look at it from like okay if you look at a tribe of 150 people how would this benefit somebody's survival whereas these like psychological problems like panic attacks like why would human beings have panic attacks like what survival mechanism does that oh panic attacks are you know? um fight or flight on steroids mm-hmm that's about it. I mean, fight or flight is there to protect us. Yeah. When we interpret something as a threat, mm-hmm. then... So I'm just thinking of yeah. a situation like where you'd want fight or flight is, let's say, you encounter a bear. Mm-hmm. How is having a panic attack, like, helping you defeat well, that remember, enemy? evolution is not directional. Okay. We don't evolve to be better mm. all the time. We just evolve. So somebody that has panic attacks, that fight or flight mechanism is just kind of overshot the appropriate like so they're getting dumping too much adrenaline you know to the point where it's not actually helpful anymore i mean that that's a potential yeah Mm -hmm. i mean because asking whether if if we start with sort of an assumption that everything serves a a functional purpose and that's why it's there first of all it's sort of like a teleological argument what does this mean um teleology is basically it's like a philosophical stance that um it rains because the grass needs the rain to grow. Like everything okay. serves this purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and really it's it sort of wielded, I guess, most in sort of religious philosophies. Um, 
of this assumption of order. Um, but evolution by, by its definition is not something that's directional. It's not getting us to point, mm-hmm. you know, from point A to point B. It just changes. It, it appears to be directional because we don't see all the ineffective offshoots because they've died. Well, I mean, there's just a lot of variation. Yeah. Right. I mean, each person is not the same. I mean, I think you're taller than me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, uh, from my point of view, a mutation because yeah. obviously I'm perfect. But <laughs> uh, but no, like we're all a little bit different. There's variations in how much we can handle, how much we can lift, mm-hmm. how fast we can run, how red our hair is. I mean, it's there's just a lot of variation, and so yeah. not everything that we have as an individual is there for a reason sometimes it just is Hmm. this is interesting i've i've never quite thought about it like that because even somebody that's obese i think about the mechanisms that are making them obese we're Mm -hmm. there as a survival it's a it's a kind of like a modern society and it's kind of preying on these like mechanisms that would cause somebody Mm -hmm. to overeat and want to overeat and you know I don't know this for a fact, but I'm assuming that, you know, I know when you, if you eat a big dinner and you feel really full, Mm -hmm. you eat a sugary mint and now all of a sudden your stomach relaxes. So you can actually, you're either comfortable or you can stuff more sugar in your Mm -hmm. face. But in my mind, it's like if you're a hunter gatherer and you're normally eating a certain amount of meat, so you don't blow your guts out, you have these full responses. Whereas then of course you come across some berries and you eat these sugary berries and how often you get this amount of like this overload of vitamins. So maybe your stomach relaxes so that you can actually cram more of these nutrients. It's this like rare source of sugar. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's that perfectly aligned. No, no. Um, even like nutritionally speaking, I mean, there's, there's something called diathesis stress, right? So diathesis is basically when we have these predispositions to certain issues that can be genetic or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, and then sometimes it just takes enough things to overwhelm our coping resources. And then all of a sudden I have a really strong anxiety issue or yeah. I become depressed or who knows what else, right? And so um, I tend not to think of it as like a human evolutionary thing because yeah. as far as that's concerned, we're all pretty much the same. Um, we're not mm. meaningfully different from one another. Uh, genetically or otherwise um, the slight variations we see are just that slight variations um, so yeah. so you you're I guess a believer in uh, nurture rather than if you're not that of course I'm not saying that you believe it's 100% but you would say like the human being um, like a 30 year old human being mm-hmm. fundamentally the way he's different than other human 30 year old human beings is because of the way he's raised in the society and all these no, pressures. I think there's both. Yeah. Um, so that's the diathesis part. I mean, that can be your genes. You come to the world with certain things already, mm-hmm. um, certain tendencies, um, certain strengths and weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Yeah. And then life happens and that affects those vulnerabilities. And now that we're learning about optogenetics, optogenetics, hard time with that word genetics. Um, where certain genes can be activated or deactivated depending on life stress or experiences. Oh, I understood that as epigenetics. Is that ah, that's right. Thank you. Okay. Optogenetics is doing that with light. Yeah, I'm oh, glad okay. one of us is awake. Yes, epigenetics. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it's it's all an interplay. Yeah. Right. The 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 conversation about nurture versus nature, I don't think has ever been taken super, super seriously by anybody mm-hmm. in the field. I think it was just an easy model of talking about the various contributions to our, our lives. Yeah. And I, I guess like the way I 
thought about it anyway is that like no sane person would be like everything's nature and right. no sane person would say everything's nurture right. but you know you have these like cases like wild boy of Averon and what was the other there's a couple of these like mm. wild children that I believe in most cases they were not able to be integrated into human society the feral like, kids yeah. yeah yeah and so there is um this thing about there being sort of a oh what's the word I'm looking for hmm it's not going to come to me right now, but basically a sensitive window yeah. uh, within which we can develop certain abilities. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of like if, uh, I don't know how many languages you speak, but uh, if you were very young, you'd have an easier time learning Mandarin than you would now if you don't already know it. Yeah, um, That's just because we're more open to it. Our brain's more plastic and we can take in more and make sense of it a little bit easier. And so for those kids, uh, there was that. They had sort of missed that window so the opportunity mm-hmm. was gone and then they had also not been socialized so they didn't know what to expect from humans they didn't know yeah. how to deal in a human world and it was very frightening mm-hmm. and uh, if i'm in survival mode and frightened and confused then i'm probably not going to spend too much time trying to figure out what this or that means either right yeah yeah but those are good references i haven't heard about those guys for a while yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was, I still have to, if I'm talking psychology, most of what I'm drawing on is, is that, you know, introductory course I took, but I, I love that incredibly course. valuable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I, I mentioned this, uh, in my last podcast, but I, I can't believe that some of these like basic psychological ideas are not taught mm-hmm. in like, like again, like grade nine, let's yeah. say that sensitive time where, you know, you can you get to choose like I, I don't think grade nine you choose too much as far as like your uh, you do a little bit your path you can choose academic courses or you can choose the more like um working kind of blue collar okay like courses i, I believe in ontario that's how it's oh, like. ontario has more of a streaming yeah 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 i think you start streaming right away at grade nine so maybe even grade eight would be a good opportunity to like mm-hmm. give people like hey here's some here's some ways that you're deceiving yourself about what you um, what you want and here's some ways of deceiving yourself about you know what you're actually the how much effort you're putting into things mm-hmm. I, I just think like what we were talking about is locus of control mm-hmm. and some of these biases you mentioned um, what were the what were the three biases you mentioned three biases you thought oh yeah not all biases children. but I think there are a few things that are important but I don't think they need to be taught separately from some other things either mm-hmm. but locus of control like you said I think that's a big yeah. one um, an agency right? Which is feeling like you can make a difference. Um, and then self-efficacy is sort of part and parcel of that. Uh, the opposite of that is learned helplessness. So where, these to me, and probably it's misunderstanding mm-hmm. of the concept, they all kind of sound like a different, a different, like different variation of the same theme. Yeah. Like they're all like you, you're, you see yourself as an actor in your life or right. you see yourself as the director where you're making things happen or things are happening to you. Right. That's, yeah. that's exactly it. Um, and it's funny because a lot of, keep in mind, a lot of our psychology is, as we know it, right, as we study it and practice it right now, is very Western. Okay. So this idea that having a lot of, being that actor mm-hmm. is like the bee's knees. Right, like that's what we're always shooting for, and we do know that in certain circumstances, that most circumstances, I would say, that's actually beneficial. We know when people feel like they have control over anything in a hospital, even the color of gown that they're able to wear, their recovery tends to go better. Mm-hmm. Um, if people feel like things are being done to them, the world is being done to them, that's when we start to get this learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been studies done where uh, dogs, for example, are on an electrified floor, and no matter what they do, they can't 
stop it from shocking them. Mm-hmm. And so at one some point, they just lie down and take it. Yeah. Because whatever I do is not going to make a difference anyway. Why bother? Yeah. Right? Um, so, I mean, there's these things conceptually are fine to teach people, but I don't know if they're really going to motivate much because, okay, I know there's a thing called um, agency or, or internal locus of control. I don't have that. Oh, you don't you don't think it would uh, wise people up? I don't think it's a choice. I think these are things that we used to describe. Mm-hmm. They're not things that we used to prescribe, right? I can't say, "Hey, have an internal locus of control now. You're in charge of your life." Someone says, uh, "Everything I've experienced up until now has taught me different." And I'm like, "Well, mm-hmm. you're wrong." I guess I'm I'm not so much like I think it's a there are lenses in which you can look at your past experience by right and somebody that is like consistently blaming others for all their problems and then they're they're exposed to this idea of like hey there are certain people that go through life Mm -hmm. and blame everything on others that might be more of like a wake-up call not so much Mm -hmm. as like here's the way to be but it's just it's like warning people of the of the pitfalls like we've through psychology we've Mm -hmm. established all these like common ways that you can basically fail to thrive as a human being and to not warn people about like to not warn most of our population Mm. about this to me seems like well uh, a missed opportunity locus of control is not a way to thrive locus of control is just is a description of something that people thrive have i thought okay my understanding of it and maybe i'm wrong is like it was a spectrum of like if you have a very low locus of control you basically put everything else like think you know Life is this thing that's happening to mm-hmm. you. You know, if you did really well on a test, it's because the test was easy. If you did really poorly, it's because the professor was unfair. Mm-hmm. Whereas high looks of control is not necessarily a better way to live life. It's like, oh, I did really well on a test because I studied hard. Well, maybe it was just an easy test. Right. It's like, it's just warning people that like, you shouldn't attribute everything that's good that's happened in your life or everything bad to yourself, but mm-hmm. also you can't blame everybody else for everything. Like, you, you know, you need to find a yeah. middle ground. So conceptually it makes sense, but that's yeah. not going to help anybody. You don't think so? No. Mm. If I, if somebody has had life experiences that they've interpreted in such a way yeah. that they don't have control over what happens to them, mm-hmm. right? Because people don't just get to a place and say, oh, I decided that, you know, I control everything or I control nothing. <laughs> no, yeah, but it's, it's I, not, I'm not saying binary. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. I'm, being, I'm being extreme yeah. and somewhat facetious. But if people have had life experiences that lead them to that place where they've developed that worldview, yeah. then telling them that there is another worldview doesn't mean a whole lot because I'll say, hey, there's this other way you can see things. And they'll say, cool. I know A, B, and C can see things that way. I've had no evidence to suggest that that's true for me. Hmm. Right? So these are things that we talk about um, as constructs they're if you want to think of them as personality traits and things yeah. they're not things we talk about as doing but here's here's i guess my question to mm-hmm. you is you've learned a lot about psychology i'm assuming you almost have a phd you do you think any of these things have changed the way you view life i think they've changed the way in which i define things okay so i will now say that's somebody with a lower locus of control but Mm -hmm. i would usually say because of this 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 and this and this it's not that they just have locus of control it's all these other factors have led them to have a low sense of control i mean at the personal level like your interactions with other people like have you looked at that and said you know what i have this like attachment problem and that's why i do xyz and push away my friends this way or do that like 
Yeah, I think there's this assumption, um, and I think a lot of it comes from this sort of idea about like Freudian stuff, right? This insight therapy is what they often call it, that if I see something in a way, or if I understand now, then poof, my problem solved. It doesn't work that way. I can understand that I'm influencing my relationships Mm -hmm. in a certain way and that that's problematic. Mm -hmm. Now, changing that is a whole other thing. For sure. But can you change? Like, I'm not saying that understanding is changing, Mm -hmm. but certainly to change, you must understand first. So by teaching a locus of control in high school, just to kind of go back to the original example, I'm not saying that every single person who's taught locus of control will all of a sudden come like to the perfect middle ground mm-hmm. and prescribe things which they can control to be that and, and external interests that and not be depressed. But right. at least if they are going to establish a healthy balance, which mm-hmm. maybe even only 10% of the population would be capable mm-hmm. of having the, you know, internal fortitude to do, mm-hmm. like to teach, to, to explain to them that that is a concept is like the first step. Like, yeah, but you know, the concept again is secondary. The concept is just some labels that we put on things that everyone experiences already. Right? I don't call mm-hmm. it locus of control, but somebody says, I don't feel like anything I do matters. That's yeah. them talking about locus of control. So there are other ways that we can affect things. But these are, they're like, I think these psychological terms in my mind are like tools for talking about and dealing with these problems. Like if and you don't have, if you don't have labels for things, like how could, if we didn't have a word for a football or a different, like let's say a better example would be like, um, plays and tactics within football. If we didn't have like a common repertoire of tactics and like we couldn't really talk about football strategy because everything would have to come down to like the basic fundamentals. Sure. Um, like, okay, this guy, first you'd take the ball in your hand and grab it with your four fingers touching the strings. And then, whereas instead we like group it into these big known things. Like we know how these processes happen. Mm-hmm. So we can actually come up with new plays if we have like a common tools to discuss right. it with right so I, i'm not arguing the use of labels or the use of the constructs i think they're very yeah. very helpful for understanding but i think you're talking about applying applying it yeah and, and specifically to yourself right example. and so i don't know that just understanding something is going to lead to us changing always Internally. for some people it might hmm. um, some people might be geared that way yeah. that they can take an idea and run with it and that's fine hmm. um, but for many it won't Right. Mm-hmm. I might understand that I have to take my pills at this time, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason, I just don't. Yeah. Right. And so it's not always that. Even if you are well versed in all the different ways right. that which right. yeah. I, I can have a conceptual knowledge, but mm-hmm. still have difficulty changing my behaviors. Yeah. Uh, they're two different things. But what I'd be, I guess what I'd be interested in, and ultimately, like, I think we agree 90% of it is, but it's like, what would the correlation be between people who don't understand it and don't act and like go through these for lack of better words, like poor decision-making mm-hmm. pathways and those who do have the knowledge, of course, some of which are still going to go through the poor mm-hmm. decision-making, but does the addition of knowledge increase, you know, adherence to better decision-making? Like this is, I don't I'm think wondering. knowing that there are other ways of viewing the world is going to help somebody mm-hmm. change their way of making decisions, right? If I say, Hey, there's a possibility that you could be more positive. Someone would say, cool. Right. It doesn't mean that they're going to say, oh, I never thought about that. Most yeah, people are I, pretty. I feel like by oversimplifying it that much, like I know, I know you don't want to get into. Yeah, that just conceptually. But, but like most people yeah. are fairly intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, and if things were so easy to think themselves that's out. That's actually of, a, that's like a, that's a big statement. Most people are fairly intelligent. They are. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
I'm not saying I disagree. I'm yeah. just saying it's a big statement. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, people are trying their best. People know themselves well. Um, they might not know everything about themselves, but mm. none of us do. Right. Oh, that's also interesting because it's not something, um, again, I, I actually don't really disagree or, or agree. It's mm-hmm. something I've thought a lot about, like how well do people know themselves? Well, like, I let's just say, you let's just somebody that's better than I do right now. For sure. <laughs> I, but I, I've done a lot of thinking about this. Uh-huh. What I'm wondering is like the modern world allows for so many distractions, mm-hmm. so many distractions. Like you can be distracted all the time, mm-hmm. all the time. There's enough TV out there that you can never not be watching TV. Right. Yeah. So this person that's living at trailer park eating Cheetos, do they know themselves? And like these are like a lot of the most problematic people in our society like that we like not that we necessarily i mean i guess it'd be another like loaded thing to say oh we have a duty to help these people maybe they don't want to be helped maybe they know themselves so well that that's how they're choosing to live their life and to interfere would be a type of violence but there are another number of things there that seem really simple on the surface but are actually quite complex um for sure first of all we'd have to define self Mm -hmm. and know and then yeah, help, of course. But I mean, you, right. I think you understand what I mean, though. Well, I do like, and I don't, because for us to know ourselves, I mean, we'd have to first understand what that means. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's my concept of a self? And there's no right yeah. answer, um, or no one answer, at least. Um, what does it mean to be me? How much of that do I have access to regularly? How much of that should I have access to? Uh, how much insight is typical and healthy, and how much might be too much or too little? Mm-hmm. Um, and you think too much knowing of yourself and your motivations could be unhealthy? Potentially. Hmm. I mean, if you know exactly... you have examples of this, actually? Well, if you sit there and analyze everything you do all day, it'd be almost as bad as watching TV 24-7. Yeah. Right? It's really hard to act if you're sitting there thinking about acting the whole time. Does anybody have that? Like, is there people that have the mental capacity to do that, though? Like, to constantly self-analyze? I think there's people who try. Yeah? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, I, I think there's a lot of things there, you know? And I think... Kind of stepping back a little bit to this idea of like having information translates to making positive changes in one's life. Yeah. Um, lots of people understand what's going on mm-hmm. and they still have that thing going on. Yeah. And actually to negate my own point, <laughs> you know, we like we pretend in society that like overweight people just need to be educated. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's the most unbelievable thing I've ever heard. Like, everybody knows that eating pizza pockets and not working out is not the way to, like, be in shape. Like, I'm not, I'm not, there's not saying, like, everybody knows the perfect diet, mm. but everybody knows if you eat a lot of vegetables, um, whether you eat meat or not, some, so let's say, like, clean meat that's not deep fried or cooked in butter right. and exercise, you're going to be healthy. Everybody knows but that. But meat is murder. No, it's kidding. Yeah, 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 that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you no, know what but, I mean? Like, if you eat lots of vegetables exactly. and exercise, like, you're going to lose weight, you're going to be healthy. Like, everybody knows that. It's not, that is not That's exactly education. the point, It's not, right? that's not the problem. It's not that we, people need to be educated. And you see, right. these, let's go to these educational so, campaigns. Uh, I think like, part gosh. of the difficulty is, and I think psychology traditionally has uh, struggled with this a little bit as well, is this idea that it's all cognitive, right? If we can convince someone to think just the right way about something, yeah. Then they'll be fixed. And this is a problem I have, I think. I, I think this is a problem a lot of us have, especially yeah. in this culture, right? We're very hyper cognitive. We think and think and think. Mm-hmm. And we kind of become these floating heads. 
right? Where we're mm. thinking, we pay no attention to anything our body's telling us. We don't pay attention to our emotional experience in the same way. Yeah. Um, we're sort of cut off because we're so busy thinking all the time. And mm. so to, to get back to your point about how would one approach these things without having the sort of conceptual knowledge? Yeah. Um, there actually are ways. There's experiential ways that people are, are working with that. Um, for example, a lot of mindfulness-based approaches to things uh, don't require you to have a conceptual knowledge or a word for this or that. It's more just experiencing mm -hmm. and then working with that experience, whatever you call it, however you experience it. And that can be super powerful. And what's neat is that actually short circuits our cognitive interpretive piece, mm. right? All that stuff that kind of gets in the way sometimes, all that overanalyzing perhaps, all of that other stuff. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, finding a different route to that can actually feed up to a new conceptual understanding instead of a conceptual understanding feeding down to changes in our behavior and functioning. Yeah, yeah. So we can be a little more fluid about that. And I think we're, we're, we've known that for a little bit of time now and we've continued to grow in that way in our field. Um, I think part of the difficulty is getting buy-in. It's like sometimes from, from people in this culture and maybe buy-in in other ways from people in other cultures who might be a little bit less cognitive and more you know, experientially focused. Hmm. What would be an example of a culture that would be highly experientially focused? Oh, I don't know. Um, I'm not part of that many cultures, a couple, but... <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I realize that this is incorrect, but if I were to take like a stereotypical sense of it, uh, like a, a Buddhist monk somewhere in like the Laotian hills, okay, um, trying to get them to you know, tear apart their experience and give labels to it all and think about what leads to this and that and that might be a little more challenging than them, than them just experiencing what they experience and then understanding intuitively what leads to what and what sort of follows what and what goes together and how that affects them, right? They might not need that analytical piece of it as much as we need here. Mm. And sometimes, like, I think here, too, we, we tend to cling to that because it's a little more concrete, right? It, it's, I have these thoughts and words and I have these concepts, and we can get so wrapped up in those things that we actually divorce ourselves from the things that they mean and they stand for. We get caught up in the ideas without really understanding the content, sort of like we're watching the movie without understanding the comic that it was based on, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think there's a lot of value sometimes in stepping back and not necessarily seeing that academic piece as being the very foundation for everything we have to do. Yeah. So I guess if you could prescribe one intervention at society in the same, like the same kind of scope that I've laid out is like, rather than teaching these psychological concepts early on in young adulthood, what, what kind of intervention could you do? I don't know if there's just one mm -hmm. or Pe series or people or are different. You know, and, and prescribing anything to everyone is, I think, dangerous, even meditation. Mm. Um, people talk about it like it's a panacea, right? Something yeah. that everyone should do. And that's not necessarily true either. Mm. What kind of personalities or what kind of people should not meditate? Uh, I mean, there's, Broadly, I mean. Uh, there's some uh, evidence to suggest that if people are perhaps like actively psychotic, <laughs> yeah, right, then focusing on their internal experience might actually kick that off more. Uh, similarly, if somebody, what is the experience of being actively psychotic? What is uh, that? when somebody, um, has what we call a, uh, uh, 
break in reality. So they're not okay. really aware of what's real and here versus what's not. So how, what would it be like if I met somebody like this? Do you have an, and especially if you well, have a specific be, example, it could be somebody who has hallucinations and stuff like that. And has no aware. Can you give me a specific example? Somebody you've encountered names removed. Like, um, I can't, no, no. I, I'd okay. rather not. Let's okay. put it that way. Um, but it could be that, uh, somebody who has hallucinations and yeah. isn't aware that they're hallucinations. Hmm. Right. Uh, feels like it's actually something happening actively right now. And so with this person, if they were to go internal and meditate, this could make their them less, even less at ease. Uh, it can it can further that psychotic process hmm. in that moment, right? It can create less connection with the world around you, and help you get swept away, perhaps. Hmm. Um, people with panic disorder tend to be a bit more sensitive to their internal sensations, and that itself can actually be quite stressful. And so, asking somebody who's uh, quite distressed perhaps by their internal sensations to focus on their internal sensations is probably not going to be a great idea. Hmm. So saying any one treatment or any is that like, is that your, your idea or is that like proven in? No, that's a, that's a thing. That's a yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and so those are some examples, but saying everyone should do one thing, I think is, is part of our problem is, is we hmm. tend to want these sort of, quick and easy answers yeah, yeah, right yeah. and it just like doesn't the world will be way. changed as long as every grade eight meditates for 20 minutes exactly in the morning. But, exactly now there are a few things but in the same way if, if you are at that level which i suppose mm-hmm. neither of us are um it would certainly be nice to have at least an influence in some positive way right? oh yeah I, I think i think there's lots of things i mean people can be quiet like you said i think uh getting away from constant distraction mm-hmm. is probably something that's good for us, I think, as humans. Yeah. Um, connecting with others around us can be very positive for people's health. Staying physically healthy mm-hmm. um, can actually be good for your cognitive functioning, your emotional health, a bunch of other things as well. Yeah. Um, and I think practicing self-compassion is big. Hmm. Um, there's, there's a lot of focus, especially in schools, on developing self-esteem. Yeah. And that's thinking I am good and worthwhile. And I think that's really important yeah but i think if we teach people to have self-compassion then having that self-esteem is not predicated on being good or perfect Mm because i'm seeing a bit more of that now i think this sort of sense of perfectionism and i can't fall or fail or struggle in your peers uh like just just across the board i think okay yeah um younger people too i have some younger uh younger kids in my life and stuff and Mm -hmm. i kind of see that and I think if we teach people that you don't have to be perfect and you're still good, I think self, personally, I think if we can teach self-compassion first, then self-esteem sort of grows out of that more easily than the other way around. Mm -hmm. So I think, I guess, but mm -hmm. I mean, my concern with that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. is like if you, if, if self compassion is like, prime is like one of the first things that mm-hmm. comes and people gain that it doesn't like would it remove the incentive to like earn like earn your praise of yourself in, in some ways does that make sense like you know yeah, you're, you're wondering uh, if i'm hearing you correctly that um if we teach people to have self-compassion would that be demotivating perhaps yeah, yeah. yeah. um i don't think so hmm. self-compassion doesn't mean oh i'm okay failing yeah. It means if something's difficult or if I don't quite reach somewhere, it doesn't mean I'm worthless. 
Yeah. Right. So I think it's tempered. It's not, you know, uh, unconditional. Um, I'm great no matter what. Yeah. It's, it's not the end of the world. And I guess like, go well. And like, I've, I've definitely read about this self-compassion mm. and I think I've read this, uh, or at least heard her Tyra Brock or Tara Brock. Mm. On a, she's got some interesting ideas on that. Um, but what I'm always concerned about, if, if something like this were prescribed, um, more largely, the message gets watered down to the point where it becomes something like, like what we've seen with self, mm-hmm. the self-esteem and like everybody needs to get a trophy and like it, the original intention of it gets kind of twisted to yeah. be almost like an ideology. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. I agree. That, and that's, that's why I don't think things should be treated as interventions. Mm-hmm. I just think we can teach each other that it's okay not to be perfect. Yeah. It's okay to falter and, you know, make mistakes and be embarrassed. I think as soon as I got here, I dumped some coffee on your table. So, you know, like <laughs> these things happen. I've never forgiven. You. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like we're all human, you know? Yeah. And, and I think, um, I think we need to be reminded that that's okay. And that doesn't mean being perfect all the time. And I think mm-hmm. that actually helps us with connecting with others yeah. because I don't need to have that shield up if I know it's okay for me not to be perfect or super interesting all the time or stronger than that other person or whatever it might be. Right. Yeah. Um, it's okay I for mean, me to be, if we, if we go about that as like a, a primal thing in schools mm-hmm. to teach that, you know, we would certainly be setting ourselves very far apart from Eastern cultures like China, for example, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> as far as like, I, I remember I was, uh, a few months ago I was in Vietnam and mm-hmm talking to this uh chinese guy who is working temporarily in vietnam and i was like well how do you how do you like working in vietnam compared to china he's like well you know here people are relaxed and you know it's it's nice out and this and that and and in china like everybody's so stressed all Mm -hmm. the time everybody's rush everybody's just you know everybody's just got so much pressure on them all the time and we work so much overtime Mm -hmm. and i was like okay well I didn't want to make too many assumptions and I'm glad I didn't. I said, well, what do you like better? He's like, China, of course. Oh. <laughs> of course, China. Right. He loved being surrounded by stressed sure. people who had just like this pressure and like if they failed, like like sure. just their, themselves and they, everybody would punish them and then they punish themselves. Yeah. And he thrived on this. Like yeah, he thought it was, he was just, he just missed it. It's what we know. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I was kind of like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, know I, I wonder about that too sometimes. And, I know. I wonder if that's sort of a natural, like an, uh, I guess it wouldn't be natural. I was going to say that's sort of a cultural thing um, due to, you know, having a really high population and everyone having to do something. But Mm -hmm. uh, from my understanding, uh, I read a lot of like old Chinese, I shouldn't say a lot. I read some old Chinese classic literature. Okay. Uh, At least the beginnings of that sort of mentality existed back then too, right? The first standardized testing was actually done in China in the imperial court. Mm. Um, so they've always had a test culture yeah. before we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's always been that sense of having to be good and better. Um, no such thing as good enough. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, some of these things, like what's interesting to me with like our youth and, and raising like, you know, when we're talking about psychological interventions at these mm-hmm. young ages or, or lack thereof, it's like, Occasionally, I, I get into the, the problem, and I feel like our society does this a lot now. Mm. Is we think about the problem as a closed loop, mm. mm-hmm. and that like Canada is like a 
you know, a closed system, but it's not. It's like it's an open, competitive system. And right, if we yeah. raise an ins- insufficient um, batch of youth and they raise an even worse one, it's like we've like we by by having an ineffective intervention is basically what I'm saying. We can uh, we can doom our entire way of life. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, it depends on how attached you are to our way of life, right? There's well, a- I'm pretty attached to it. <laughs> Because there's this thing, too, where we assume that things are good and they should stay that way, right? But yeah. uh, things have always been in flux. And oh, yeah. it's not that... Things are pretty fucking good now, though. Come on. Sure, sure. And I mean, I don't want to be in a... I'm not saying I want it to stay the same. No, but, but I don't want to be in a crazy test culture either. But if, I mean... If we're going to do some radical change, mm-hmm. like, and maybe it's good and maybe it's bad, mm-hmm. it's good enough right now that I'd rather not take that gamble. Mm-hmm. If I was living in like well let's say china when the mongols were coming and somebody gave me that radical change for the better or for the worse mm-hmm. i'd be like yeah i'll, I'll take the I'll take like, it, yeah. let's, let's <laughs> go for it but now i don't know well this is it's a funny thing actually because that's a very human thing isn't it i mean if you think about just within the body we have homeostasis our body maintains a certain equilibrium and we really do everything we can to maintain that when we talk about cognitive dissonance we will even change our own attitudes to maintain our basically our mental homeostasis to make, mm-hmm. keep things consistent, uh, we don't change as people individually or as a people unless external pressures force us to, and that's just evolution at work too, right? Yeah. Um, if I'm a finch and I'm perfectly fine with my funky looking beak and I can get food, then why bother? Mm-hmm. You know, evolving over time, like there's no yeah. reason to. Um, so, I mean, that, that's a really superhuman thing. Yeah. Is, hey, if there's Mongols coming in, I'm going to get murdered. That's enough pressure for me to want something to be different, right? Yeah. But, but I think culture like nature, like, mm-hmm. you know, this finch with the weird beak, mm-hmm. it will adapt, like, over time. If it needs to. Yeah, but I mean, I think... We have jellyfish that haven't changed for millions of years. Mm, this is true. Because they've just been, there's been no pressure to. They're fine. Hell, they're doing better now than they ever have. Yeah, I suppose you're mm-hmm. right. Yeah. I was going to say with cultures, there's always pressure to change. Mm-hmm. But I suppose I suppose there could be a monoculture theoretically that exists and just carries on for millennia and millennia. When you look at some of these Amazonian cultures and stuff that haven't been near other people, there's been no external pressure. Yeah. And yeah. I guess I guess I'm kind of, my, my assumption, of course, is that this culture is within... Right, like more of like a global thing. And in that case, you're right. Then we're butting up against other cultures and things like that. And so we're somewhat threatened all the time. Yeah. Um, But I think it's a funny thing too because we are still kind of operating like isolated kingdoms where we think this is my way and that way and this way. Mm -hmm. My beliefs and their beliefs, our colors and their colors. Um, But that's kind of a choice. If we start to say, hey... uh, I don't see that, like, I'm, you know, Canadian or American. I mean, this is one I hear a lot, right? Yeah. People are like, uh, Canadian stuff, good. American thing's bad. Yeah, sure. That's not, I mean, at some point, basically that little line that we've drawn on a map, we say that's totally different. Yeah. And I agree that it gets some points, it gets silly to draw the line. And it's like someplace, where am I a Victorian now? Mm. Or am I a Vancouver Islander? Am I a BC? I don't really, I've never, I've hardly been off the island since i moved to vc three right. years ago so i i don't really associate myself with being a british columbian but i also don't i never really consider myself a hardcore ontario right. and 
am proud of being so Canadian, split, split I the guess. Difference and just Although be I'm not a, even, I'm not proud of being Canadian. Just, I didn't be, just be a Winnipegger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Meet in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, uh, but I do believe there is something like in Western culture mm-hmm. that's unique. Um, yeah. And I certainly don't consider myself a citizen of the world in the sense that I have, I feel this like shared culture. Now, mm-hmm. I, like I'm an advocate for human beings in any scenario. Mm-hmm. Like I, but do, do you know, you know where I, I know. I know, I'm not, I, know I'm, I know I'm not. Yeah, I'm not doing yeah. a good and, job. And honestly, picture, I don't but, think anybody is right. I don't think any of us no. would go somewhere super different and say, "Oh, that's exactly the same as home." Yeah. Um, and I agree with that as much as I do with everything at home. Right. Yeah. And the other thing too is like, I think there is some value in drawing that line of like saying, "I'm a Canadian. I'm a BC or I'm a Victorian," because. Other people are, like, if we say we should see ourselves as citizens of the world, it's like, well, that works until in China, they don't see it that way. Mm. And they see it's like China against us. And if China sees it that way and we see it as like we're all on the same team, mm-hmm. probably going to fucking lose, <laughs> well, I think. You're thinking about this uh, tit for tat sort of thing, right? Yeah. In, in game theory, they basically say you respond in kind because that's the only way to stay alive. If you're okay. trying to cooperate and somebody is trying to confront, mm-hmm. um, that's not going to work so well. Yeah. Right. So try to co- cooperate until somebody does something different. I think mm-hmm. the difference with cultures is often we view uh, encounters with another culture as threatening and mm-hmm. we view them as an attack. Right. Oh, I'm seeing more. You, you've been talking about China. So let's uh, use that as an example. Sure. Uh, oh, I'm seeing more Chinese stuff in the store. My way is being attacked now because that's more pre- present for me. Yeah. I don't think it works that way. I don't think. Uh, except for situations where you have like apartheid or colonialism, like in the tr- traditional sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's a much more fluid thing. I mean, forever yeah. it's been like that. I mean, look at India. India has a lot of English things in it now yeah. because they were taken over. That was colonialism, clearly. But I mean, the UK has a lot of Indian stuff now, too. Yeah. And you were saying earlier about cultural appropriation. I'm assuming mm-hmm. you're kind of joking about that. But oh, with like, Osmandias? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it could have very well been like a something else. I don't know what, I don't know what the, I, I get what the appeal was. He explained it. I know. Yeah. But yeah, I was kind of joking though. Cause like, I think that's one of the things that is, is completely absurd. Like, mm-hmm. there is that, it's an obvious um, low shot or whatever, but there's that little girl who dressed in a Japanese sari or the, the kind of traditional Japanese robe. And she's just got like all this hate on the internet and her parents were mm-hmm. threatened. And then some Japanese woman, like it's kind of funny. She chips in and says like, we love it when people come to Japan mm-hmm. and wear our traditional clothes. And it's like, we have this like culture that we're really proud of. And you know, our grandparents are really proud of it. And we, we think it's awesome that this person like did what you guys are accusing is like yellow facing. Yeah, um, right. And I mean, to me, I like, I think that's like, that's actually like a, the whole, um, and I'd be curious to hear the opposing side of this argument, but like this uh, cultural appropriation thing, mm-hmm. it's almost like white people getting mad at white people. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's not actually like, well, for the most it's part, not always, and actually. a few, like, and a few people that are like, like, not necessarily white, but they're like mm-hmm. heavily westernized people that mm-hmm. aren't, that are more entrenched in Western culture right, than they right, would right. be in this case, like typical Japanese right. culture. It's not like Japanese people getting mad at. Yeah, it's like you're getting mad this. on behalf of another group. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's like with with like people. I heard about like pe- white people shouldn't do yoga because it's culturally appropriating it because you're not taking you know all the spiritual practice that go with it. And it's like, well, who says that? Like we're in the West. Like if I want to stretch, 
Like, well, it, you know, I don't know. I don't have an issue with the yoga thing. Yeah. I just have an issue with pretending like it's yoga. <laughs> yeah, it's right? mislabeled. I mean, if, yeah. if it's a great exercise. It's fantastic for your body, stretching yeah. and everything. It's just not yogic practice. Yeah. yeah right? And so that. as long as we're clear about that, cool. Mm-hmm. I think the difficulty is when people don't understand that and they pretend yeah. like they're doing a spiritual practice when they're not. Yeah. Right. And, and so, actually there's nothing to me like, and I, I, maybe I'd be interested in going to like a yogic practice where it's actually somebody who knows those deep traditions. I don't think you'd find it here. No, no. But I like when I go to yoga, which I have occasionally, mm-hmm. I like, I go there to stretch. Yeah. And when this like, you know, 23 year old self-appointed guru starts giving me her like spiritual stuff it's always like oh man get you can't get me out of there fast enough it's like just yes. tell me what to stretch lady. the canned wisdom yeah. yeah while we're stretching just remember don't be a jerk <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um but yeah no i think uh personally i think cultural appropriation is a thing but not always. I think a lot of it goes into the motivation, and I think it's a contextual thing. Okay. If there's a group that is marginalized, um, and in certain situations where uh, certain cultures are, uh, there are active efforts to erase that culture, mm-hmm. then dressing in a way that's traditionally of that culture, uh, having foods that are traditionally of that culture, and claiming them as your own, I think that becomes cultural appropriation. So give me an example. Of uh, I mean, there's a number of them. Um, but, uh, I mean, one easy one is if we were to walk around with uh, traditional First Nations headdresses, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that is not something... We're not on equal footing with that culture. That culture has had it pretty rough. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us to then take that and say it's something of ours, um, I think that's appropriative. So I think when it's equal footing, um, and then it becomes a sharing. But when it becomes... When a group but see, is... See, this is actually... I kind of mm-hmm. disagree with this because... To me, it's like, okay, there's two ways that some, you know, like, let's say like some college student could wear this headdress. Mm. There's like some person that's trying to pay an honest tribute to this culture. Mm. And then there's some like a drunk frat boy doing Yager bombs with the the headdress on. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's like the better way to describe that drunk frat boy is just an asshole. And then somebody else that's trying to pay homage to a culture that has, you know, been on the decline for various reasons. Like, I don't think like cultural appropriation like that guy's he's an asshole like he mm-hmm. i don't think we like to me the term cultural appropriation just gives us like people that want to spew hatred and like target certain individuals it just gives them like a big license to you know what i mean to yeah, attack but i think it depends right and i think it's a funny thing because the, i find often in these situations in these conversations that i have with people uh cultural appropriation gets defined by the people like it gets defined by people who aren't of that culture kind of like you were saying right Mm -hmm. uh i think it's sort of up to the group uh that is what's up to the group being emulated um to define whether that they feel like that's cultural appropriation Mm -hmm. if i feel like i've been oppressed in certain ways and now people are walking around with things that my ancestors had or things that are important to me without an understanding of it like even that fellow who's trying to pay an homage if he's not of my people and he doesn't understand what that means, he hasn't earned it. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't have the right because he doesn't have that standing in my community. Um, then that is appropriation, albeit maybe not with bad intentions. Yeah. Right. Um, but what is like, that's the problem though. Is like, mm-hmm. then there's always the what next. It's like, okay, we're going to define that as c- cultural appropriation mm-hmm. and the community 
seemingly like although just if there's one out just because you're more outspoken doesn't mean you represent the community that's actually one thing i've heard about a lot of trans people is there's like certain like a lot of trans people have you know their way of looking at themselves and identifying and then there's a few outspoken individuals who like they def- they don't represent the community any more than like um a white supremacist represents me right he says like i represent white people i'm like eh, not me actually yeah. you know you don't represent me but he's a lot louder yeah than me whereas like some trans person saying like i represent trans people because i'm trans i speak for all trans it's like well that's well, kind of like a pretty yeah prejudice I mean, idea that's no more like prejudice than me if i were to say like mm-hmm. well all trans people are stupid it's like it's, it's it's just like homogenizing that yeah, group. Yeah, I, you know? I agree. There is this issue of a vocal minority, right? There's usually yeah. a small group that's quite loud and uh, tries to rep for everybody. But I mm-hmm. think it can also be problematic when we assume that if somebody's speaking that they don't represent something that's a wider spread sentiment, just like in class. Mm. Um, but I, I think that should be the assumption. Like you right. shouldn't just assume. But like in class, when they said, go ahead and ask everybody. a question. Yeah. Because chances are there are other people in the class who have that question. Mm-hmm. They might not have the platform or the strength to ask that thing or to bring up that issue. So I don't think we can just dismiss it because it comes up, right? That's sort of yeah. what that could turn into easily is, oh, somebody's saying something, so it doesn't matter. Um, mm-hmm. But there are groups. The problem that I, I guess mm-hmm. when you, when we, if we were to go back to cultural appropriation mm-hmm. specifically, it's like if somebody from let's just say this native population sees this headdress and says, I don't agree with that. And Mm -hmm. I'm speaking for my culture Mm -hmm. because it's, you know, you can't do a cultural consensus every time one of these events comes up. Then it's like, well, now all of a sudden it's not just a matter of opinion. It's a matter of like that person actually has to change their behavior or be punished based upon the feelings of a small group of people. So what if we were to do a cost benefit analysis, right? So Mm -hmm. you're saying that the goal of not the frat boy, because he's an asshole, like you said, yeah. Uh, the other fellow mm-hmm. uh, who's uh, trying to pay homage to the culture. Yeah. So clearly he's doing... Also sounds like an idiot, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Maybe misguided, but it sounds, it sounds like a sentiment is, sure. is positive, yeah. right? Um, and so his goal is to pay respect to this culture and pay respect to the people of that culture. Mm-hmm. Now, if somebody comes up and says, you know, I understand what you're doing, yeah, but I, at least, as an individual in this culture, mm-hmm. find this to be offensive. Yeah. Now... Even if it's just that person, the fact that it might be other people means that that person's goal Mm -hmm. is not really being achieved through this means. Yeah. Right? If you're going to offend people or make people feel marginalized, then what is the benefit? Yeah. Right? If you're just like, and this is is sort of the thing, right? If somebody's saying, hey, I don't really feel good about that, and somebody's saying, well, it's not appropriation because I don't mean it to be, then if you forget the title and you say, Hey, it's offending people, even though that might not be your intent, what's the benefit of, of continuing? Mm-hmm. Right. And often I think it gets into this kind of pissing contest where folks say, well, I shouldn't have to change, but shouldn't, shouldn't doesn't mean anything. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Right. I should be taller. Right. I, I shouldn't have issues digesting dairy. It doesn't matter. I do. And I'm not. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so if I'm offending people, then there's really no benefit to me doing that other than i guess like freedom of expression which is but to me, that's not your goal your goal is not to express your freedom your goal is to pay homage to that culture right yeah, and if i'm trying person's... to express myself and i don't need to do that in a way that'll offend other people yeah but i guess in this case we're talking about this individual who 
expresses some is is doing something whether maybe they're the headdress is a, is a is actually maybe an odd example maybe he's like he's a guitarist and he's taking some typical native american uh or indigenous kind of like song and putting his own spin on it right yeah. maybe that's a better example because it's it's not as it's not quite as obvious of a case i'm not sure if that would be called cultural appropriation though oh you don't think so oh i think that would be but at least i've never heard of a of a musical rhythm or anything uh, being called cultural appropriation. Usually I've seen mm. it with food and clothing and certain okay. rituals. Yeah, mm. I've never seen it with, I've seen it with like those sorts of things rather than um, other things. And yeah. also I think I've seen it, at least for me, I in the circles that I belong to, I've seen it where other groups have taken those things. Yeah. Um, but rather than saying it's an homage to another culture and acknowledging that the other culture exists, yeah, they've pretended like they've originated it. Yeah. Uh, so then it becomes an issue yeah and i think then it's a little more clear because if you're going to do something and say hey this is a headdress from that group of this area and this is an homage then at least you're acknowledging that it's not something that you came up with whereas yeah. if you had a, a headdress that perhaps you based on a first nations design mm-hmm. and you're saying look what i did i got this cool yeah, yeah. this cool hat right then i think that would be cultural appropriation mm-hmm. so maybe the issue isn't and I also just think that's always happened, right? Like it's, mm. it's like, that's kind of what happens in just in like bonsai trees were not a Japanese thing they, that was taken from the Chinese. And then the Japanese went full Japanese on it and made it to what it is right now. Right. Lots of things were like that. And it's like, yeah. should we not let, should we say like, well, it's retroactive cultural appropriation, like Japanese well, people. The get difference with a lot of trees. Japanese things. First of all, there was colonialism is the way a lot of these things happened. So that doesn't mean it's okay. It just yeah. means that people did it, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that that's already always happened doesn't give yeah. it free license. The Japanese don't exactly have the best history of treating the Chinese right? superbly. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, lots of things came from China sort of naturally. Like the writing system, kanji and stuff, actually originated in China and then sort of went to Japan. Yeah. Buddhism kind of went through India and all these things mm-hmm. through China into Japan. And so there's things that naturally travel and spread. But then there's also things that we get just through people appropriating. And yeah. you're right. People have done that for a very, very long time in different cultures. I don't think that makes it any more okay. I'm not even necessarily saying it's okay or it's not okay or like passing a value judgment on it as much as like the enforcement is where I have a problem with it. It's like, okay, we say this is a thing and we're going to label it as cultural appropriation. And that in my mind, like by labeling it, mm-hmm. it's like now we're going to enforce it. And that's kind of where I see it's problematic. See, I, I, on the, I guess, contrast, um, I see that as really empowering. Mm-hmm. I think groups that traditionally didn't have a say are now able to say, I don't think that's cool. Yeah. Right? They have a voice now. Whereas mm-hmm. before, by, by labeling it, they're able to give themselves a voice. Yeah. Whereas before, they just had to shut up and say, oh, there's a bunch of uh, British guys now walking around with turbans. Yeah. Right? Um, okay. yeah (laughs) right so i I, like i get what you're saying and i i I do see how that could kind of cascade yeah right and i think you can get a snowball but for me at least now that i'm talking to you about it um i think the main issue is acknowledging the origins at -hmm. the very least but i guess like again i i agree for sure and if i were you know if i were to take a some headdress and adopt it for whatever reason mm-hmm. personally i think i would be an asshole to not you know 
ask somebody permission, hey, is this okay to your culture and like pay homage and basically like if I were like having some sort of like, let's say I'm involved in some fashion show and I I take this kind of like headdress that's based on some First Nations uh, headdress. Yeah, I'd be an asshole not to attribute it back and like Mm -hmm. pay that respect to that culture. But I almost think like that's where it should end. Like I don't, I don't believe and like I should be treated like an asshole. But I think where it goes one step farther is like, that's where I have the problem with it is like the enforcement and the punishment. Um, And I know it's not like officially in law and I hope it would never be, but it's like people go so far with these things because it's almost like a bandwagon they can get upon. And I think like they almost like weaponize these things against people that are like politically different than them. That's kind of where I have the issue. People can. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes it's warranted when it's done with a blatant disregard for what its meaning is and for the group it belongs to and the origin. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in like your circumstance, for example, where you're saying you're like in a fashion show sort of thing, yeah. and maybe you didn't know, mm-hmm. uh, bringing that to your attention, I think if you accept that is different, right? If yeah. somebody were to say, uh, oh, like shit, I had no idea. Um, I'll be more aware or something i don't really know what what yeah, what you yeah. do but we're too we we it, it really discusses we need more concrete examples but, yeah i know yeah. It, it's hard isn't it um like i have some but i'd rather not go there but um, <laughs> okay why not uh various reasons <laughs> okay but uh yeah so i i think i think that's the difficulty right if somebody brings it to one's attention and the person says i'm not going to change anything yeah um then you're basically saying uh that's cool I don't really care, right? Yeah. I think that's the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I guess like, I feel like our society in some ways is like, why can't we just ignore jerks? Like, why can't we just say, that guy's an asshole, I'm not going to his fashion show. Like, why well, do we have to like stop it from happening? Well, you know I, what I mean? I, I, I really agree, actually. I mean, we don't have to respond to everything. Or, yeah. Whatever. I think part of the reason why there is such an outrage culture now, and I do think it's a little overblown, yeah, um, is that what used like it's sort of like bad example, but let's say like a racist joke, mm-hmm. okay, or any joke really. It doesn't have to be a racist one, but before you could make a joke that was perhaps offside, mm-hmm. and what was funny about it was that there was a shared understanding that it was offside. Yeah. Now with the world the way it is, there are people who actually think that. Right. If I made a joke about, uh, you know, a certain group being dumb or something, yeah, then somebody might laugh, and I'd have to be like, "Wait, do they do they actually think that group is dumb, or is it just because it's so silly that a group would be dumb?" Yeah. Right. So that shared understanding. I think that's that's never not been the case, though. Maybe, but I think there's always been an assumption um, that, at least generally speaking, certain things are offside, and that person's an asshole, whatever. But now I think there's sort of a fracturing of that. We don't hmm. know what's a shared I'm not sure. Morality. I agree that there's the perception of a fracturing of that. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if it actually exists or so much if we are being influenced to believe that there's a fracturing of that. I think for a lot of people, there is an assumption. There's there's a view of that. I think it's often people who you are... You think there's more racist now than there was 20 years ago? I think people are more cognizant of it. Of, of racist people out that there. That there are racists and that it's an okay thing. I just be, think it's become so much more not okay to be racist. The few racists that actually are out there mm-hmm. have so much more because it's so absurd. Whereas like 20 years ago, if you were like, 
this like KKK group, which has 20 people mm -hmm. in a giant state had a rally, like people will be like, yeah, of course there's lots of KKK right. groups. Whereas now there's like a few of these groups and it's like, yeah. even if there's hundreds of people, it's like hundreds of people out of hundreds of millions. Yeah. But I mean, that's, um, uh, looking at it from my point of view as somebody who's mm -hmm. ethnically, culturally, religiously different. Yeah. Um, it's a different story. Right, you have more people now. You have more loud people who are being yeah. given a platform. You have more credibility at a at a political level, right? Yeah. And you have these conversations that are saying, "Well, is it really that bad to be racist?" Right? Mm. Um, that's what the change is. It's not that racism ever didn't exist. It's that now there's no sense that it's necessarily a bad thing. I don't know. I disagree with that. I, I, That's because you're not a racist. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm right? a racist. I've, I've yeah. had uh, people that I've spent time with um, who have been like super racist, but have no sense of it. They don't believe they are racist. Right. Like what kind of things would they do that are racist? Oh, I mean, there's all sorts of things. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you've heard of microaggressions. Yeah. Um, and so people often poo-poo those away saying, oh, well, everything's a microaggression. Well, it's not. Mm -hmm. Um Microaggressions can be very micro mm -hmm. or not so micro uh, and it happens to women all the time, right? Where people will talk over women or they'll say, oh, well, that's not really a thing, you know, or you're just being hysterical, uh, these sorts of things. But when you think about like, would I say the same thing to a man? It would probably be kind of weird, right? Would mm -hmm. act that way. So these microaggressions are things that people don't do on purpose. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of fed by these latent beliefs, and so for racial things, people might um, discredit your experience and say, oh, well, that's not really a thing, right? Or, oh, you're, you're uh, overanalyzing it or, oh, that happens to everyone. And I mean, that's not the case. We know that, mm -hmm. right? So these sorts of things, I mean, that's happens, that happens. Yeah. And I'm sure that's always happened. But now it takes on a different meaning given the context of the world, hmm. right? And so I think it's not that, each of these things didn't happen before or that they're brand new. It's that the context of them has changed. And you believe this is from like Trump or just from like, I think it's from right a lot of things. The, I Europe think, I like... think Trump is a great symbol of it. I think yeah. Trump might be sort of the herald, but I don't think Trump's the only one yeah. by no means. Cause it's happening in Europe as well. Uh, definitely Italy. It's happening in Brazil. It's happening mm -hmm. in the Philippines, not like white folks, but other things, you know, mm -hmm. Indonesia has some horrible things happening in the name of Islam. Like, all sorts of people are getting crazy. Yeah. And I think now that we don't have, we can't depend on that sense of safety and connectedness. Mm -hmm. uh, the context of all of that has changed. Hmm. Things that may not have. Well, I agree with your first statement. I hmm. don't think we should ever depend on safety, but I, I just, I, I always struggle to believe that the world is becoming a worst worse place especially in recent history I, I i feel like the trajectory has been up upwards things in flux most ways things flux oh totally I'm, and i'm yeah. certainly not saying that it's going to continue to go upwards yeah. i just feel like in most regards like human civilization and culture in the west has been an upward um trend for how we treat each other yeah for certain groups for others not so much hmm. for others we may have had a bit of a bump in the middle there but at the moment it's on a downward trend. Like, for example? Well, for lots of people. Muslims. Yeah. Um, trans people are getting more exposure now, but they're also mm -hmm. getting more hate than they ever did because people are aware they exist. Yeah. Um, so it really depends on which group you 
identify as, right? Mm-hmm. If we sort of look at it as a whole, I agree, we're probably on a holding pattern. But mm-hmm. if we look at it a little bit more minutely, there are certain groups that are really getting beaten up right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know if we can say like, and oh. I'm also, I'm also very aware that I'm very isolated from it being on like Vancouver Island yeah, and I mean, being a white guy. We, here, we all have our own yeah. experiences, right? And it's not to discredit anyone's individual experience. I mm-hmm. think it's just we need to be aware that our experience may not be everyone's and that mm-hmm. if we sort of zoom out and say everything's fine, that actually invalidates the struggles that certain groups are having. Yeah, I guess I'm not saying everything's fine. It's just I, I feel like sometimes things are... There's like the left which wants to catastrophize our society as a whole and then the right that wants to say like you know well the extreme right would say you know people are non-whites are coming to our country and stealing away like you know whatever Mm -hmm. um propaganda they would say i just feel like you know obviously there's a health happy medium and none of us are going to agree exactly where that happy medium is but yeah that that's just kind of something i i fundamentally don't agree with that is kind of i hear every once in a while that kind of narrative that like things are falling apart and we're treating minorities worse and i'm not saying we're treating them perfectly like don't don't take me wrong i just feel like i just feel like it's not getting worse but i know that that is i don't have evidence to support that it's it's getting worse you really think it's getting worse oh yeah people feel there's videos and stuff all over the place people feel more so anecdotal you know that well no there's videos i know that's not an anecdote an anecdote is like you you can't say like we are treating black people worse because there's no, but more there is, videos there of is, black people getting there's more shot hate by cops. Cr- there are more hate crimes. Those are that's numbers. Like, yeah, like the statistics for that. Not yep, just, they've yeah. gone up, yeah. uh, especially against certain groups. Yeah. Um, there are more uh, attacks and things like that. People feel mm-hmm. more able to say horrible things yeah. to random people. So what do you think is the cause of this? That's I think it's this, this sense of permission. And what is it like where like I'm kind of tracing this I'm just going to keep to avoid annoying you I want to keep tracing this back like where where does that central permission come from like what's the you know what's the catalyst of this change as you see it I don't know a lot of people mm-hmm. like to blame Trump uh but I, as you say and I, I kind of agree with you that Trump is like a you know people didn't vote for him exactly yeah, like people voted for him I mean yeah I, th- yeah I think I think Trump is a is a symptom yeah Right, not a cause. So, do you have any theories on what would be like, where, why would we be no. going so upwards and then start heading down? No, I think things fluctuate. I think because um, if you look at like where mm-hmm. we are in like, let's just say, not not certainly racial problems in 1960, but let's mm-hmm. just take that as a, an example compared to uh, 1560. Like, it's a huge upward trend, and yeah, now but, somehow that's is reversed. In, well, in 1560, there wasn't really racial problems because you had <laughs> one race per place. Yeah, okay. I went too far back, but right. you know what I mean. I do, but I mean, I think that's part of the issue. And actually, right? I think there probably was huge racial problems back then. It just, they've been washed over. In no, no because, there were, but I'm just saying, yeah. like, it's a different context, right? Yeah. Uh, I think part of it well, is... Well, I mean, I think the people that were persecuted are all dead now, so they don't have a voice. Yeah. But I think people who... Um, have traditionally enjoyed a, a position of privilege, mm-hmm. um, ha- are feeling threatened now. Mm-hmm. Uh, call it, you know, way of life or culture or whatever. But because there are people who act differently, believe differently, look differently, mm-hmm. who are starting to come up, and I think that threatens a lot of people, especially the people mm-hmm. who belong to that group but don't feel like they've done very well. 
yeah. uh, people who don't have a whole lot of education who may also struggle with financial insecurity and things like that. And so feeling yeah. like they are not only competing with these folks, but now they're competing with those folks too. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of fear and hatred there. Yeah. Well, who is it that said it? It's like, it's, <laughs> that is like, it's always funny that you look at somebody who's like a white supremacist and they've got like eight missing teeth and like some genetic problems and they're just like all fucked up. Mm. It's like, <laughs> you're like, you're the worst example of white supremacy out there. You're basically like a walking invalidation of your argument. Yeah. But, I, uh, I think people who struggle will kind of glom onto almost anything that um, validates their struggle. Yeah. And yeah. gives them kind of something to struggle against. Yeah. And I, I also think like maybe perhaps the working class has had it harder and harder now. It becomes like more and more expensive to get yourself out of the working class. Mm-hmm. And say you're like a, a white guy working in a Ford factory and your dad was a white guy working in a Ford factory and had two cars, bought a new TV every year and had all these things. And now you're like barely making scratch. Mm-hmm. And then the cultural narrative is that you have so much privilege and you owe everything. Like, you know what I mean? And that guy, I mean, like, so much privilege. Like, I am doing to work twice as hard as my old man and I have half as much, you know? Uh, Perhaps that is like, and I'm not saying he's right or the wrong. The idea of privilege like, is, is, I think there's a misunderstanding about what privilege means, especially amongst people who belong to the groups that have been privileged. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a sense that if I was privileged, I would be way ahead of where I am. Uh, privilege means everything's been working in my favor. That's not what privilege means. Privilege Mm -hmm. means that there have been more opportunities than another group. It's a relative thing. But to me, like you have, if you're going to say somebody has privilege, you have to break it down to the level of the individual. It doesn't make sense to assign group privilege because let's look at this guy. Well, it does. I I, I don't see this. Let me, let me finish the point. I don't believe that you could say like, so this guy that grew up in a trailer park and he was molested by his uncle Mm -hmm. and had like, you know, just a dog shit sandwich mm-hmm. for his life compared to a black kid who is the son of a doctor and has had like every advantage given to him. Like that guy, that young black guy mm-hmm. has a ton of privilege and that young white guy does not. Now on average, do white people have more privilege than black people, black people in the U S for example? Yeah, for sure. But like to say that guy has white privilege, like that's a ridiculous statement. Like well, it's not because <laughs> I think it's ridiculous when people statement. say things about white privilege as exactly yeah. as you've said, it's a group level thing we're talking about. Yeah. When we talk about trends and but health, people then use that immediately turn around and use it to make not, decisions at the individual. Not level. necessarily. Mm. When we That's make claims about um, health trends or anything like that, we're talking about groups, right? We're always talking about trends at a group level. We are never saying any given individual in that group is going to act the same way. If I say, cancer tends to progress this way there's going to be some people who no, don't have that happen yeah right but now you're kind of making an intellectual argument which and these oh, are I'm, not. I'm talking about what it means right yeah. so when people say people have white privilege it means they have the privilege of being white and the things that go with that it mm-hmm. doesn't mean everyone has done great or that yeah. everyone has had privilege and it also doesn't mean that everyone who's not white doesn't have some of those privileges too yeah Right. Uh, traditionally, if we're talking about group level things uh, in the States, let's say mm-hmm. uh, white privilege would mean uh, having a higher income than other groups as mm-hmm. a group, uh, having higher education as a group, yeah. uh, being uh, 
arrested less. Yeah. And, and I agree with all these and things, things like that. Group. Right. Yeah. But that uh, African-American guy you're talking about, who's the son of a doctor and all this kind of mm -hmm. stuff, he's male, he's probably got some money and he's educated. Mm -hmm. He's clearly going to be doing better than that poor guy living in the, in the trailer park. Yeah. Right. It doesn't really change what the conversation's about. Right. Because he still has a disadvantage in being black. And this guy still has an advantage in being white. It doesn't mean everything that comes along with that is going to apply. Mm -hmm. right he's probably not going to get arrested when that guy might be or might get stopped and frisked or something yeah. right so there's some things it's not like an all or none and i think mm -hmm. that's the challenge is when we talk about things like privilege it doesn't just have to be white, white privilege either privilege can mean just education mm -hmm. right educated yep. people live this way and have these opportunities and people who don't have that access to education have these other issues right mm -hmm. um it's a group level thing it's not to say that everybody with a PhD is going to be a kajillionaire. Yeah. Um, and I totally agree with yeah. you, like, if it stops at the group level. But I really feel like the cultural narrative applies it, like, immediately. And let's say it was just, like, on Twitter or wherever mm -hmm. it is. Immediately then looks to identify certain people and apply that label to them, that group label to them specifically. Yeah. Those things are immediately like to use a kind of word I was using before, weaponized, weaponized yeah. to defeat somebody and, and make anything they're saying invalid. Yeah. I think it can be weaponized. Right? Um, I've seen that too. Yeah. Uh, I think often when I have seen that it's been, it's been when somebody is kind of arguing, making your argument saying, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm white and I didn't get that. So it doesn't, yeah. so it's not a thing, right? That like the last part of that statement is the problem saying I'm white and I haven't had that. Mm -hmm. You can say I haven't benefited from some of these things. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean it's not a thing. Yeah. And I guess that's not my argument right? though, because I, I right. I, I meant like the first part but, though. Right? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think that second part is often tacked on and I think yeah. that's the problematic bit. When yeah, you say something, if people, if people deny that there are privileges to being a white male in our society, they're insane. Or any male. Or any male. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. I, or just being in our society. Right. right. You know, and like, so but think, there's so many levels of privilege. But I just yeah. feel like we have these certain terms that yeah. are then used to invalidate specific people yeah, that may have a good point to make. And I, that's that's where I feel the problem lies. But yeah. yeah. I would never, like, invalidate somebody who said, yeah, it was very hard for me because I was a black kid growing up in Detroit yeah. to become a doctor. It's like, yeah, it was probably way harder for you to yeah. become a doctor and you're probably way smarter, not even necessarily way smarter, but like you are either smarter or you're harder working or you're, you have probably many different positive attributes than the average doctor because you've gone through so much adversary and yeah. kudos to you. I would never want to take that away from somebody, but to say to like, then this white doctor who got his place maybe easier or maybe he's from the trailer park and was molested and all this and fought through that same adversity to say like, well, we don't actually want to hear your opinion mm -hmm. because you're white privilege. Like that's where I think the problem. Yeah. Lies. And I, to be honest, I don't think I've seen that. I think what I've seen mm -hmm. is where people say the starting lines are at different places. Right. But by, that's why I'm saying they're, they're at such different places. You can't generally speaking. Right. For the group on average. Agree. And we yeah. have numbers for this. Right. On oh, yeah, average. Yeah. I'm not I wouldn't debate. Yeah. The starting the lines yeah. are at different places. Yeah. And so I think when I've seen it uh, used to call somebody out. Yeah. It's when somebody says uh, that hasn't happened to me. Yeah. So they're not at different places. Right. Yeah. Because we're talking about 
But here's the thing, though. Like, Mm -hmm. every time we talk about one of these concepts, like, Mm -hmm. if we're going to make a policy, either whether it's just the social level or the ultimate level, ultimately, those those policies are implemented at the individual level. So that's where I find, like, grouping people at basis of, like, arbitrary things, like the color of your skin. Um, Let's just go with the color of your skin or your sex. It's not arbitrary. It's a proxy. Sure. Like, but grouping with somebody with that is ultimately unhelpful when the intervention has to happen at the personal level. Right, you're going to take one person and put them in a special class. You, every, everything at the end of the day, if you're a teacher in a classroom, she's doing it to one, two, one, two. Like I, I feel like, yeah, I, I just feel like lumping people into into groups. And I, I agree, it's it's not necessarily arbitrary, but I don't think it's a way that's helpful for us as a culture to move forward to like re-engage these like ways of dividing ourselves. Um, and I don't think it's a way of dividing. I think it would be if it was something that was manufactured. Mm-hmm. I think think if it's something that we have a lot of data on uh, over generations, yeah, um, then it's not a way of fracturing. It's just addressing something that's always been there. Yeah, right. If if we didn't have the data, then I'd say sure, it's just people arbitrarily being jerks, you know, or or calling mm-hmm. people out because they don't have something that they want. Yeah, but we do have a lot of information that suggests yeah. that. This is how it goes, especially in places like the States, but here in Canada too, right? Yeah, yeah. There are certain groups that uh, have benefits um, on average that other groups don't have on average. Agreed. And that yeah. is changing a little bit, but uh, it's still an issue, right? And and mm-hmm. I agree with you that it. I don't think we know how to address it. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know if I have a great answer for how to address it. I think you need yeah. like a social policy person here to do that. But yeah, yeah. I, I do recognize that there's an issue. And I, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding sometimes about what that issue is. And it's at this group yeah. level kind of thing. For sure. Well, uh, man, why don't we wrap it for tonight? We can do, we can do another yeah. one sometime, but it's uh, I'm down about two and a half hours. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All well, right. thanks for coming on, man. It was really well, interesting thank to you. chat. Yeah. Um, we'll maybe talk some more about comic books later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jordan. I think we had a good back and forth and I really enjoyed learning from him. He's a guy I respect uh, quite a bit and uh, I hope to have him on again. So let me know what you thought of our conversation. Hit me up on Twitter at Contra underscore podcast or send me an email at ContraPodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.